Welcome to King's Tavern, the oldest building in Natchez, standing before 1789. Operated as a tavern, stage shop, and a mail station at end of the Natchez Trace. Like I said, welcome to the King's Tavern, one of the most historic and haunted destinations in all of Natchez, Mississippi. In a moment, I'm going downstairs to eat and share ghost stories. Well, we've been exploring a little bit here at King's Tavern, and well, we've heard some rumors, so you, can you please fill us in on the history behind the ghosts? Well, I'm not going to ask anybody to believe in ghosts, but I'll tell you, there are some strange things that do happen here. This being the oldest building, I'm sure many, many people have passed through this building. Some of the legends are we have one of the main ghosts here is Madeline. She was a young girl that worked here back in the late 1700s as basically a tavern wench. It's rumored that she had an affair with Mr. King, and Mrs. King found out about it, stabbed her with a dagger, and bricked oh, her up in the fireplace. That's one way to do it. The skeletons were found in the 30s, so Ooh. there actually were skeletons there. Ugh. We're definitely one of the most haunted places in Mississippi. Well, but now I have to ask something that's even more important than the ghosts. Tell us about the food. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This is telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome back fellow travelers. We are so happy you're here and that you didn't forget about us. And if you're here, we're going to assume that you didn't forget about us. Or if you did, you've been pleasantly reminded now. And we are all very pleasantly surprised to see you. <laughs> it's a dark and stormy night. It is. It is a dark and stormy night at our fourth, you heard me, fourth recording location. This is the fourth time we've moved since we started the show. Which is sick. <laughs> My kids think it's what you do for fun in the summer. But we've done it, and we're here now, and we have several stories for you. Ah, uh, but before that? Before all of that. We do want to welcome all of you back. We want to remind you that you can reach out to us on social media at Just a Story Pod on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also check out our website, justastorypod.com, where you can find links to all of our sources if you want to learn more about the episode and find links to other things. Like merch. Merchy merch merch. That's where some of my artwork lives on things like t-shirts, shower curtains, wall art, etc., uh, it's a little weird to think that people have anything I've ever done hanging in their home, so that's really cool if it's a thing you want to do with your time. Even weirder to think that people have my artwork on their body. That's a weird thought. Someone's wearing something I drew on that their body. Cool. It's that's really awesome. cool. It's like, of all the things, you picked that one. It's pretty cool. It's nice. I like it. It's one of my favorite things that the show has allowed me to do. In addition to the Merchy Merch 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 store, you can find links to our Patreon page. Which we should be getting back to soon. Apologize to all of our patrons. We and have had the summer, y'all. The summer. <laughs> Kids home from school. Last minute move. Literally moved in the day before they started school. It's been a lot. <laughs> but there are a ton of extra episodes on there and you should check those out and it's one way to help support the show um one other way that you can get in contact with the show 
is the Urban Legend Hotline. And you can reach the Urban Legend Hotline by dialing 512-222-3375. And once you have dialed that number, you will be connected to a nifty difty voicemail where you can record your favorite urban legend, spooky story, campfire yarn, fishtail, whatever you have, a song. Maybe a song. a song. Yes, I'd That's love. Lovely. I would love to hear about a weird song you used to always sing at camp. Oh, I thought you meant someone singing a song. People have sent us songs that are fantastic. Yes, that's true. Which I'm saving for an episode. One day. <laughs> One day. But if you two have a song, I mean, it could be a camp song. You could sing us a song if you're into opera. We'll take that. Whatever. We'd love to hear from you. And sometimes we use those stories as the basis of an episode. But today's story, Samantha. It came from a little road trip. Road trip! That's right. We recently went on a fun little weekend road trip right before the move so we didn't kill ourselves or anybody else. Mostly each other, I think, was really the aim. And so far, it seems to have worked. If I go missing, call the Urban Legend Hotline and tell someone. (laughs) And we took a quick hop up to Natchez, Mississippi, one of the oldest settlements in the country. A very historical place. They will tell you that. It's all over. Uh, over and over again. All over the literature. And we wanted to check out this extremely haunted place. Ooh, it's spooky. It's been on all the ghost shows, all the night vision shows. And the name of it is King's Tavern. King's Tavern. So King's Tavern, as the legend goes, became a tavern in 1789 when it was bought by Richard King. But the building itself was 20 years old at the time. It was a blockhouse that was built of sun-dried bricks, cypress clapboards, and barge boards. The ground floor had originally been used as a stable with living quarters for slaves, and the second floor had a living area as well. Now, travelers coming down the Mississippi or up the Natchez Trace could board for the night. Now, it was operated as a tavern by Richard King from 1789 to 1820. It was also a post stop. Like a post office? Well, yeah, but like, like the post like roads. Old school yeah. Po- yeah. Like we talked about. Yes. So, often have Native American runners that would serve as postmen up and down the famous and infamous Natchez Trace. Explain what the Natchez Trace is a little bit more. Oh, we'll get there. We'll okay. Get there. Yeah, okay. we'll get there. Historic road in the vein of like the post roads we kind of talked about. On that episode. Mm hmm. But it didn't remain a tavern very long, actually. And in 1823, it was bought by the Pusselthwaite family, and it was a private residence until the 1970s when it was restored and became a restaurant again. If you were to watch Ghost Adventures... Or any of the night vision shows. Let's just, you know, we're not hawking Ghost Adventures. (laughs) But we love to hate watch it and love to love watch it. We have so many mixed feelings. It's about a this complicated show. relationship, bro. Seriously, bro, it is. If you watch that show, yes, you would hear about the smoldering sex pot, Madeleine. Yes, she was a tramp. A tramp. No. Well, she was a self-possessed young lady who actually liked her body and enjoyed, you know, sexual experiences. Very progressive. Yes, yes, very, very. Or she was a young girl that the owner of the tavern probably sexually preyed upon. 
More likely. More likely. <laughs> so Madeline was a young girl hired by the King family. And Richard fell in love with her or lust, lust with her or something. Anyway, they started getting naked together. That's the point. That's where the story is going. And his wife found out. Oh, no. And we know what happens when Madonna meets whore. <laughs> A woman scorned. Woman scorned. Somebody's going to get dead. And somebody did. And it was Madeline. And supposedly she either got somebody to kill her or killed herself using... A dagger with this jeweled hilt. Yes, an old Spanish dagger. Yes, as the story goes. Now, the story goes further. Yes. It says that Madeline's body was sealed in the fireplace. A la Edgar and Poe. Very environment of them. Yes. And then in the 1930s, they were renovating the restaurant, which we know... It was not a restaurant in the 1930s. It Already. So it was renovated. They were, they were doing work on it. If you watch Ghost Adventures, they say it was a restaurant. Well, it was a, it's also a story. <laughs> but anyway, so they're redoing the restaurant or the house or whatever. And they come to the chimney and out falls a body, out falls a jeweled dagger, yes. and out falls a ghost. Who? And they also found two other male skeletons, I guess also in the chimney. And then you will see that there is a famous portrait of Madeline. Yes, it's all over the TV shows. It's not, not in the there. Restaurant. It's not there. <laughs> not there. <laughs> and we asked about it. We we're like, um, where's that painting? And the guy got all like, uh, just a story on us, and was like, you know, they didn't have paintings back then. We were servant like, girls. Uh, like, no shit. But <laughs> no shit, but, dude. but we've been lied to so much. We just thought you would lie to us as well. That's lie. why we're here. Lie some more. Come on. So. No portrait of Madeline. But it's been today. taken down. It's been taken yeah. down. Someone probably was like, uh, that's not her. And somebody probably, well, actually, them. And in their offense, they took it down or something. But the place does have this kind of oppressive, odd feel to it. You know, we went there, we ate. It was actually really good. We had like brisket flatbread. It was really, really good. And it was excellent. And their almond tea. Magnifique, if I do say so myself. So, while this is not sponsored by King's Tavern, <laughs> would recommend five stars on y'all. And would accept a sponsorship. Sure. <laughs> Free flatbread. But it does have this just oppressive feel because the ceilings are so low. Yes. And I had this amazing moment, <laughs> which I walked in on, <laughs> where like there had been this like bro bartender, and he was nice. He was very, well, actually. He was, well, actually. Well, actually, they don't actually make portraits of servant girls. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. So this other girl walks out, and I, like, look up, and there's this thing hanging from the ceiling, and it's a bar, and it's got these two big loops coming down from yeah. it. And I'm like, what is that? And she looks at me, and she goes, oh, uh, uh-uh. <laughs> Just like that. And I was like, what? And she goes, I ain't never seen that before. <laughs> and I was like. What is it? She goes, mm, I don't know. <laughs> and Jacob walks up and he's like, what are y'all talking about? What are y'all doing? And I, was, and I pointed and he goes, that's a yoke. <laughs> well, actually, it's a yoke. <laughs> yeah, so he got in on the well, actually, too. But I gotta we get him in definitely thought it was like a torture instrument or something. <laughs> but there are, of course, many tales of the haunted stories of King's Tavern. Which, what's their tagline? Like, Spirits of one kind or another, or something, something like that. Something like that. It's very. It's cute. Spirits of all kinds, maybe. Something like that. But there are, of course, stories told of a female spirit in the tavern. The previous owner, Yvonne Scott, 
said that her daughter had seen a ghostly figure of a woman standing in front of the fireplace. Another time, Yvonne and a visitor were sitting at a table in the main dining room, and the visitor began asking questions about Madeline and an antique chain hanging on the wall. Oh, like a yoke. Probably your problem <laughs> Began to swing back and forth. Also, the no longer present portrait has been said to swing back and forth. Maybe it swung right out of the restaurant. Must have. Well, actually, it didn't swing. It flew. It said that she will open doors, and if the staff says, All right, Madeline, the doors will shut by themselves. It's like a clapper. All right. <laughs> Clap on. She's also said to like to play with water, and she'll create puddles or turn faucets on, or they'll find small, wet footprints on the grounds. Oh. One waitress said, I was getting ready to leave when I decided to go to the restroom. While I was in the restroom, I heard someone lock the door from the outside. I had to call my boss to come to the tavern and unlock the door. I know I was the only one inside the King's Tavern at the time. And yeah, we walked by that bathroom, and there is a big out of order sign on it. There's a big broken place where you would break a lock. Yes, so, there is. Who knows? That checks out. Could have just been a bratty coworker who was very sneaky. Could have been a ghost. I'm sure there were good people on both sides. But you know, no one knows who the two other men were. Some people think they might have been possibly slaves that had somehow angered miss king or maybe even why is she the bitch like how does she get that rap right right this is not going to be a feminist episode but it could be (laughs) or maybe she had you know hired the murders and then she dispatched them them herself now see that's a bad bitch man like that is spent a few days bringing them up like and shoving them in a chimney like if she hired murderers kill the murderers and put all three of them in a chimney herself and nobody found out about it. And then hired Masons. She, but no, she would have had to do that herself. Oh, maybe she killed the Masons and they're somewhere else. Maybe. Now we're going to need to go dig again. Maybe one's the murder, one's the Mason. It's like a nursery rhyme. Like the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. The virgin, the whore. So whenever our buddies at Ghost Adventures went in 2013... They really focused on that Spanish dagger from the 1700s. And they actually did some research. And I was very like, Pat, Pat, good job, Zach. Like, very good job, you. They even looked up old news articles, which was Uh, very impressive for them. (laughs) So, of course, the weapon was supposedly found, like, in the chest of Madeline or, you know, different things like that. Yeah, it's like, it indicated that she died violently and this was the murder weapon. And now the dagger is supposedly... Still owned by a relative of the Postlethwaites. Puffle, Is that how we're going with it? I don't know how to say that. Postlethwaites? I'm going to call them Postal Whites. I actually and... looked it up. It's like Postlethwaite. Postlethwaite. Yeah. So it just sounds like you have like a, a... Cotton balls. You're going... Cotton balls. You're going Marlon all Marlon Brando. Brando. Yeah. Okay, method. We're doing this method. Always. Always method. So supposedly they own it. It wasn't shown on the show. They weren't able to get access to it. Uh, when we asked the bartender... He told us that the current owners were in contact with the family and were planning on trying to create a replica. They were trying to arrange to get like HD photos of it, like really high quality photos, so that they could have like a prop guy. A, yeah, so they could have a it replica. Out. Yeah. Hopefully, they will acknowledge that it's a replica. Yeah. We will let you know. Yeah. We will be going back to Natchez. We had a blast. Yeah, we did have fun. And the logo for King's Tavern. 
is the dagger. And as the eye. Yes. In King. So it's kind of a cool logo design, too. So one may not actually be able to materialize facts about King's Tavern. That might be a stretch. But can we at least get to some earlier stories? Can we at least get back to, you know, our kind of facts? Let's, let's trace it back some. Let's trace it, yes. Let's, let's follow this thread. So, you know, on the little historical marker in front of King's Tavern, it'll tell you it's the oldest building in Natchez. And it is. It is one of the oldest buildings. But the truth of it is that on July 20th of 1794, a man named Prosper King petitioned the Which Spanish governor, mm-hmm, who ruled Natchez at the time, for permission to build a house, the site where the tavern now stands. Almost exactly two years later, on July 20th of 1796, the petition was granted to Prosper by the territorial governor. Then a year and a half later, he sold the property to his brother, Richard King. Richard King, Dick King. That's right, yeah. Sure. He was sure. Dick King. He was. He thought so, at least. His wife did not. No. So, no one knows if there was a building on the site at that time when it was sold to Richard King. But about a year and a half later, it was 1799, it's recorded in the minutes in the courthouse of the area, Adams County, where Richard was licensed to operate a public house. Or a pub. A pub. A tavern, one ah, could say. Ah, I see. So, the tavern was probably built actually between 1798 and 1799. It's long been regarded as the oldest building in the town of Natchez. What's important is that the building identifies as the oldest building in Natchez. (laughs) So in the 1820s, the tavern was converted from a tavern to a private residence, like we said. And that's when Elizabeth Postlethwaite's husband came into ownership. But he died of yellow fever. And so actually who moved in was his widow, Elizabeth, and their eight children. Now, the home does have a long history of ghostly hauntings. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch, writing about it in 1936, said, On stormy nights, the spirit of travelers are supposed to knock at the door after their ghostly rides over the Natchez Trace. Now, the Clarion Ledger, which is a Mississippi paper, in 1966, was writing about the theft of the dagger. So the headline, Legend Has It, Thief will die within a year. The theft of an antique dagger said to bear a curse has been reported by the owner of the oldest house in Natchez. According to family legend, which she has heard since she was a child, that anyone who steals the dagger will die within a year. The owner, quote, scoffed at the theory the dagger may have been taken by a ghostly intruder or the phantom Indian chief. What? Where did he come from? He's a lost legend. We'll talk about him who is rumored to appear at the old house. According to the owner, the dagger, now missing, was found in the walls of the building 80 years ago. Oh. Do that math. That's longer than 1930. It is, it is. It's better. Yeah, it's even better. When repairs were underway. At the same time, three skeletons were found in the cellar of the old tavern. Mm, Not the chimney. Not the chimney. The dagger was found in the chimney, which... Makes a lot more sense. It does. In early days, when the house was used as an overnight stopping place on the trace, the dagger may have been hidden by a traveler. Perhaps the same one that concealed the skeletons in the cellar. Seriously doubt that, but okay. (laughs) That's fun for you. That's fun for you, Clarion Ledger. Good journalism. In, In article in 1935 about the house from the Clarion Ledger, 
says when repairs were made in the old barroom of the inn several years ago, a jewel dagger was found in the chimney and several skeletons were discovered buried beneath the floor. So... So, not three bodies interred in the chimney by an angry Mrs. King. With a dagger with, in the heart. the heart. It's cursed. No, no. But. But. Super cool story, bro. Like, for real. That's, that's, it's still a really cool story. They found a dagger in the chimney and bodies beneath the floor. Like, nothing says badass roadhouse. Like, a dagger in the chimney and bodies under the floorboards. Like, I mean, you're rocking your haunting at this point. And it's actually a story much older than the 1930s. Which is cooler. Older is cooler. That's just my opinion. And I think it gives it more validity. Right. Uh, yeah, like, I don't know if it really gives it more validity. It's just, yeah, it's cooler, whatever. <laughs> Fine, I'll go with your word. So why is everyone seeing the ghost of a woman? Like, why is it such a female energy that is... You know, if you want to, let's go there. So Miss Elizabeth Postlethwaite, who moved there, actually died in the family residence on July 27th of 1860. So it could be Elizabeth? Could be. You know, in their years of residence there, she had the porches closed in to use his bedrooms, and she had the large fireplace in the parlor redone and embellished. So it would make sense that she would, like, be there in front of the fireplace, like, have a connection with it. But also, I think that that dates our time when they might have been redoing the fireplace. Right. In right. that kind of 1860s, like, to 1900s time period, probably like, kind of post-Civil War. That makes sense. So that's probably, like, when they found those things. Ah. So if she's the one that found the dagger, maybe she has some supernatural tide. The, I don't know. I don't know. Sure, if you want to go there, whatever. Whatever. I'm just it's, trying to date when it happens. Well, you know, we could be boring, or we could talk about ghosts. That's why I keep you around. Okay. I heard something when you were, mm-hmm. you were reading one of your news articles. An Indian chief? An Indian chief. The Indian. The Indian chief. We need our Indian. Has he fallen out of fashion? He has. Oh, no. He is no longer oh. part of the legend. I have not seen anything in modern text about him but he was a huge part of the stories it's so funny because you remember that one of the most commonly conjured spirits at spiritual seances was an indian and so they were very fashionable when he first showed up oh you're right and then of course the ancient indian burial ground thing all of that so that actually makes a lot of sense but did you find anything about him other than he that he was around did he have any backstory or anything there are a lot of different versions of the story from back in the day some people thought he was a post writer because a lot of Native Americans were hired as post writers because they knew the trails and they could get there fastest. Some people say he was a chief who, you know, like sold his land and was coming back to get it or was taken from him and he was coming back to claim his land. Okay. So, an article from way back then, the 30s, tavern employees say the Indian chief has been stalking the old building in full war bonnet, no doubt returned to claim the land of his ancestors, the Natchez Indians. That's really interesting. But, let me kind of piece everything together with those skeletons they found. If you're reading about Natchez in the 1930s, they're doing a lot of building and renovating of things. Mm Mm-hmm. And they are finding a lot of Native American remains. Cue the thunder. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) We didn't do it. (laughs) You'll see tons of articles. So just this one headline. Indian skeleton and relics found. Pottery pipe and beads excavated with bones on Moss Hill Plantation. Interesting. Okay, so this is a pretty common occurrence. Very common. I'm talking about 20, 30 different articles about them finding 
like you know pottery or bones or different things as they're like digging at different places in Natchez. Would you like some additional context? I would love some. They began doing the pilgrimage, the tour of homes, which was a big thing in Natchez. It's still a big thing in Natchez, but they started doing that in 1932. Right, and that's why there's a lot of writing about that. And why there's a lot of renovation going on. Everyone's trying to get their homes all gussied up because they've realized that this new tourism industry is going to support the town now that no one's plantations are producing as much. Because... You know, they kind of all got burned, taken away. Yeah, we'll talk about that too. <laughs> but tour of homes started. People started doing renovations on their homes around this time. Of course, the skeletons are literally going to come out of the closet. <laughs> literally. So possibly these bones were found, you know, at some time post-Civil War. And they may have been Native American bones that had been there for centuries. So the Indian chief, if we're going literal ghost, actually makes a lot more sense than Madeline. Makes a lot more sense, but no one talks about him anymore. He's a lost legend. Maybe he made his peace. <laughs> so Natchez is the end point of the Natchez Trace. So I've mentioned that several times because it's a very important road. Just like the post roads we talked about in that episode, this was another important road the very beginning of the country. So the National Park Service sign says, A wilderness road that originated from a series of trails used by the southeastern Indian tribes. The Natchez Trace was politically, economically, socially, and militarily important for the U.S. in its early development. Among those that traveled the road were American Indians, traders, soldiers, Kinnitooks, post riders, settlers, slaves, circuit-riding preachers, outlaws, and adventurers. So all the cool people. Everyone. It was a forest trail, and it extends about 440 miles from Natchez up to Nashville. So, it's a very old trail. Native Americans had been using it as an early footpath, but it had been created by foraging of bison and deer and other large game that would, you know, break through the thick forest, and they would, kind of, you know, like, migrate north to south, and they would go up to the Nashville area to the Salt Licks. Mm-hmm. And come down south as it got colder. And so, of course, Native Americans following the game even further established the trail. And so this part, this kind of Mississippi Delta region of the country, has some of the oldest archaeological sites in the country, also in the world. <laughs> so in Louisiana, you have Poverty Point. Kind of a big deal. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And right outside of Natchez, you have the Far Mounds, which are 2,000 years old. That's old. So this area was a very important hub for trade way back in the day. Like pre-colonial. Before the white man. Before the white people got nervous. Okay. And then white people came. And so, of course, it was used by settlers as well. It was a very well-established path, like I said, through very thick woods. Since very early on, the Natchez Trace has had a spooky history. Well, it is a path through thick woods. Of course it does. Of course. Just south of Tupelo, there is a sign that is placed by the National Park Service which reads, Witch Dance. The very name conjures visions of eerie midnights, swirling black capes and brooms stacked against a nearby tree. Exclamation point. Thank you, National Park Service. The old folks say the witches once gathered here to dance, and that wherever their feet touched the ground, the grass withered and died, and never to grow again. Impossible? Question mark. Maybe so. But look around. Look for a hidden spot where no grass grows. 
Old timers say that where the witches dance and touch the ground, the grass withered under their feet and refused to grow again. There are still scorched patches of earth not touched to this day by a blade of grass. Locals steer clear of these patches, believing that evil will befall you if you set foot on them. It's said that chanting and the beating of drums can be heard on nights lit by a full moon. If you hear that evil screeching and wailing, make sure that you head the other way fast. fast. <laughs> that was from okay website, but I, oh, it's just so funny that there's like even just legends from way back then that are still told. Mm-hmm. Andrew Jackson was said to be afraid of them, like wouldn't go in them. Good. <laughs> I wish he would have. So, commercial trade down the Mississippi began in 1785 between Spanish Louisiana and well. Anyone that could float down the river. So the Cantooks were these rough Kentucky frontiersmen who operated flatboats down the river. They were described at the time by Alexander Wilson. Dirty as hot and tots, their dress a shirt and trouser of canvas. Black, greasy, and sometimes in tatters. The skin burnt whenever exposed to the sun. Each with a budget wrapped up in an old blanket. Their beards 18 days old added to the singularity of their appearance, which was altogether savage. It's racist. <laughs> what? Hot Against to- Kentuckians? They were as bad as Hottentots. What are Hottentots? Uh, it's like a slang term for Africans. What? Yeah. Oh, no, I didn't know that. I'm going to wash my mouth. That was soap. <laughs> I hate when I use 300-year-old pejoratives. pejoratives. I can't Let's remember- take it back. <laughs> Can we take it back? I don't know. I can't remember the origin of it. I just know it from the woman that was called the Hot and Tot Venus. Oh. Yeah. Uh, I looked into it at one point. And that was I the one with the big booty? Mm-hmm. The Barnum? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a good one. Google it. It's a very sad story. I know. It actually is, is terrible. <laughs> but before the invention of steam power, like, you know, the Paddle boat frequent thing, use yeah. of steam boats, the Mississippi River's south-flowing current was so strong that a northbound return journey was impossible. So the Canatooks and others would build a little barge, load up their goods, you know, just like Abraham Lincoln did, float down the river, mm-hmm. down to Natchez or New Orleans or Baton Rouge, and trade their goods. When they were done... The escalator didn't go the other way, and they had to use the stairs. They had to use the stairs, the Natchez Trace. So in 1798, the U.S. created the Mississippi Territory... With Natchez as its capital. So Jefferson. Okay, so not Jefferson Davis, but the. Uh, wrong no, time. No. <laughs> uh, a little early. A little early. But TJ. The president. Yeah. Yeah. Thomas Jefferson wanted to connect the Mississippi frontier to the U.S., and so he designated a postal road to be created, branching off of Daniel Boone's Wilderness Road, which ended in Nashville, all the way down to Natchez along the Natchez Trace. Handy. Yeah. And so. This was started in 1801. So this is before we've even gotten Louisiana. Two like years we're, before. We're nosing up against the French. Yes. Just trying to make them nervous. <laughs> so it was officially called the Columbian Highway. Uh-huh. After Chris- our, Christopher Columbus? Yeah. Oh. A genocidal dude. Yeah. But. Thanks. Fittingly, also called the Devil's Backbone. Oh, yeah. Fair. But by 1809, the trail was fully navigable by wagon, with the northward journey taking about two to three weeks. That's not bad. It's not bad. So at this time, Natchez is on the frontier. It's the West. It's really funny it's to look back and west. see. Like, seriously, I found articles that are like, 
True stories from the Wild West, 1833. You know, like, (laughs) talking about old-time Natchez. It was founded by the French in 1716. But then, as it became, you know, territory and then became part of the United States, it was... Yeah. Right, right. It was French, then Spanish, then free, and then American. And it was largely populated by Tory refugees... After the Revolutionary War. The nerve. Especially this town is this really weird kind of... Hodgepodge. Hodgepodge of people coming from all over the country, including these loyalists, and it's also the Wild West, and <laughs> you have plenty of ruffians. Pirates. Mm, River land pirates. pirates. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, no, they were called bad, like land pirates. So, you know, it wasn't an easy trail to go back on. But it was the easiest and fastest way up. So, you know, after coming down, they'd sell their goods and then have a big pocket full of gold and then head on back up home up the Natchez Trace. Let me set the scene for you. Let me make a comparison. This is like if you go to the Broadway ticket machine in Times Square. What? And you accidentally get Hamilton tickets. I was going to say, we're buying Hamilton tickets? Yes, we're buying Hamilton tickets. And you accidentally get Hamilton tickets. And then you turn around in the middle of Times Square, accidentally go down the wrong street, but don't realize it and start exclaiming, I just got half price Hamilton tickets in the front row! And someone comes out of the woodwork. Like 17-year-old. Girl. <laughs> and she's like, they're mine! And like steals them from you. This I is say the- that, but I would probably... I would... Probably take a grab at him. It's like, I'm not going to miss my shot. No. no. <laughs> I'm taking my earrings out. I'm getting the tickets. So, of course, the trace was full of highwaymen, land parrots. And there are people who are, shall we call them, soft targets. Right. They've got tons of gold. So this relates to another legend of King's Tavern from the Clarion Ledger, 1977. King's Tavern Ideal Home for Spirits. There have been some strange going-ons in the night at King's Tavern. Ah, say the people who work there. It's just Madeline and the Indian chief. See? Oh, we've got both of them now. That explains the strange happenings if you happen to believe in ghosts. There have been eerie lights and the sounds of feet stomping when no living person was upstairs. The swishing sound of hoop skirts in an empty room and the strange behavior of the grandfather clock. It is reasonable to assume that many folks who supped at King's Tavern were later found with empty pockets and throats cut on the well-worn road. Now, one of these highwaymen was said to have stayed at the King's Tavern. It's quite a famous one. This goes back to the late 1700s. Now, as the story goes, a woman was trying to calm her screaming infant in the mail room, which is now the tap room. And after a few minutes, the door to the adjoining room opened and a large bearded man lumbered in. He went to the woman and asked for the baby. For some reason, she thought he was going to help and handed the baby over. Oh, thank you kindly, Mr. Savage Man. (laughs) The man grabbed the infant by the ankles and banged it into the wall. He then handed the beaten and bloody body back to its mother. Now this heartless fiend was none other than Big Harp. Big Harp. The notorious outlaw and America's first serial killer. A Peshaw. Peshaw. He was part of America's first serial killer duo. True. But before we talk about the Harps, we have to talk about the legend that goes with it. 
Natchez is a, is a weird place. It's if, a weird place. It's a weird place. And if you are at all into the spookies, and if you are at all sensitive to the spookies, it's going to fuck with your head. Like, it is one of the most densely populated ghost places I've ever been. Like, it's up there with New Orleans. Like, outside New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. it's up there with New Orleans. And so the whole time we were there, I was a little weird. I was kind of spaced out because I kept like, this is spooky. There's somebody here, you know, the whole time. But when we went in King's Tavern, I was like a little like, meh. Meh. Like, I, I was not terribly impressed. It did not have a... A recognizable character. There was no one like wanting to talk. There was like ghosts to me. Ghosty, not people. Go- people were talking. <laughs> Ghosties weren't talking. And I was like, I'm whatever on this place. It's not terribly spooky. And so we went outside. They had some picnic tables set up in the back. We went out to finish our sweet tea on the back porch. <laughs> As you do. As you do. Went in room. And we started to walk away. And I like stopped like dead in my tracks. And I looked at Jake and I was like, I just got the biggest chill. Yeah, and I was like, I thought you said there was, like, you didn't think this place was spooky. I didn't at all. And as I'm saying this, like, and also, I'm not one of those people who's like, dude, look at my arm hairs. Like, that is not my, like, hey, there's ghost sign. That's very unusual. Not a thing I want to talk about. But just as I said it, we hear a baby crying. And that's what people say you hear is the baby that was bashed crying. It was so clear. It was so clear. We, we both like, just started the- laughing. Because yeah. we were like, oh my God, I thought it was a ghost baby, but it's a real baby. Like, how funny is that timing? Oh my God. Okay. Like, and then we walked to the street and there was no one there. We kept going and Jacob looked at me. I was like, that was funny. And he goes, Samantha, where's the baby? We like looped the block, looked inside, and Look, there was no baby. Because I assumed it was coming from the house next door, but when we got... It was abandoned. It was abandoned. And if it was coming from the house next door, CPS needs to be notified. The reason I dismissed it so quickly is because like, I heard a woman's voice kind of after the baby was crying. Yeah, no, I did too. I and, did too. Yeah. And so like I heard that and I was like, huh, it's just a woman and her baby. But no car passed by, like nothing. Nothing. It and, was so and we crazy. Were, it was spooky and then it was funny and then it was really, really <laughs> spooky again. So people say you hear the baby crying because the baby was killed at King's Tavern. By Big Harp. By Big Harp. Mm, okay, questionable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is a debatable story, but all of the pieces come from facts, which makes legends so much fun, right? Let's talk about the Harp Brothers. I feel like we need to take a moment to kind of just like meditate on Big Harp and Little Harp. America's first serial killer. <laughs> so. Yes. I'm going to start with this article I found from Mississippi Free Trader, which was published in Natchez, Mississippi, on May 10th of 1833. Oh, vintage. The title is Early Times in the West, The Lonesome Post Oak. About seven miles north of this town is a very remarkable spot. A solitary post oak stands here in the barrens, and the forks of the road has obtained universally the name of the Lonesome Post Oak. In the early settlement of this country, above 35 years ago, this was the only This is the only tree to be seen for miles round, whence its name. It was then tall, green, and flourishing, and it is now, however, a leafless, branchless, thunder driven, scathed trunk, sending up its shaft as straight as the mainmast of a ship of war. Superstition has heretofore and still guards the spot. The tree is looked upon with something like the same veneration with which the Egyptian regards his pyramids those grim sentinels of eternity. This place is remarkable 
for a very severe battle fought by Big Harp and Davis. This Big Harp and Little Harp, his brother, were the terror of the surrounding country in those early times. Two more exorable monsters have never disgraced humanity. They lived with two women, as bad as themselves, in a cave about twenty miles from this tree. Blood and massacre were their delight. It was their custom to sally forth, and without any known reason, to murder without distinction all the men and the women and the children that they could find. As the country filled up, the people could no longer submit to their horrid depredations. Men and dogs collected and took the pursuit. They came on the two harps in a narrow valley, about ten miles from this tree, and they immediately mounted their horses and dashed off in the direction of the cave. In going about five miles, Davis, whose horse was very fleet, had left his companions and caught up with Big Harp, having previously separated from his brother, the Little Harp. Here were two powerful men armed with rifles and butcher knives and tomahawks by themselves far from help and bent on death. Davis well knew that if overpowered he would certainly be killed, and Harp had determined to die rather than be taken alive. They passed and repassed each other frequently, making blows without effect, each dreading the fire for the fear of missing, and there by placing himself at the mercy of his adversary. Finally, the horse of Big Harp fell, and with it threw off his rider, then rose and galloped off. Harp sprang to his feet and fired at Davis, the shot taking the effect in the head of Davis's horse, which reared and fell. So, after this battle, they dug a hole and buried Harp at the foot of the lonesome post oak. It is currently believed that the ghost of Harp still walks in that neighborhood. I myself heard a respectable farmer say that he, on returning home from Hopkinsville on the moonshiny night, heard some one yelling most dismally that on passing Post Oak, he saw the ghost of Big Harp <gasps> standing on the very top of the tree, bolt upright, <laughs> clad in shining armor and motionless as a sentinel. Some of the neighbors, however, doubt the correctness of the old man's vision on that occasion. They say he had been attending an election and was rather deep in his libations. Yes. Had got his brains muddied in corn whiskey and mistaken the ghost of Harp for a large white owl that was accustomed to sit <laughs> on top of the tree and hoot to the moon on cold frosty nights. I for myself denounced the report of the old man's drinking too much as an atrocious calumny. Of my own knowledge, he belongs to the Temperance Society and is a very zealous leading member thereof. This oak was supposedly located near Cincinnati, Ohio, but it was uh, okay. but they reprinted the story in Natchez because of the interest of the heart. Right. Well, I mean, is any of that true? Um. Yeah. <laughs> no, some of it. Yeah, it's not true per se, but it has. Okay. Tethers to reality? What's the reality? Tenuous tethers to reality. I mean, I know the reality is they were terrible, horrible people that killed a ton of people. Accurate. So was Christopher Columbus. But whatever. Different. Different. (laughs) But whatever. Okay. So back in this time, people were just allowed to be dickheads. Kidding. Um, People really hated them from the get because several reasons. So they were not brothers. They were cousins. brothers. What? Genealogists now believe that they were actually cousins who decided to be brothers because that was easier. Harp cousins doesn't have the same ring. Yeah, right? Sounds good. Nah. Mario cousins. Blah. Eh. Blah. There's nothing super about that. Mm-mm. Would not play this video game. So their real names were Makaja, that was Big Harp. Nice. And Wiley, that was Little Harp. Okay. His real name was Joshua. Now their fathers came to the United States from Scotland before the United States was the United States. And they moved from North Carolina to Virginia, 
when they were young men because they were hoping to be slave overseers, which seems a fitting profession. That tells you a lot. Right? But alas, they did not get to realize their professional dreams. We had to go and do that damn Declaration of Independence thing. Interestingly, it's like they set out to be boogeymen. Like they set out to be the people that Americans were going to hate. And they began this career. I mean, they were slave overseers. Obviously, they're like gunning for this position. But then they decided that they would be loyalists and Tories as well. Bastards. Right. They didn't really care who won, but they wanted to pillage and plunder. And that is easier to do if you are fighting against the occupying side. Right. So they joined the loyalist pillaging gangs. Yes, they did. They literally did. So from Legends of America website, they say, along with other like-minded irregulars, they apparently thrilled in activities of burning farms, raping women, and pillaging American patriots. When Little Harp attempted to rape a girl in North Carolina, he was shot and wounded by Captain James Woods. However, he survived. So in 1780, they joined the British regulars, and then they joined a group of Cherokee Indians and went on several raids with them in Tennessee and North Carolina. So they really like to pick the wrong side of history. Right. They, Like I said, they set out to be bad guys. It's like they... I have a lot of trouble believing these accounts because it's like, how could anyone be that wrong all the time? <laughs> and then legend has it that the brothers later kidnapped Captain Wood's daughter, Susan, and another girl named Maria Davidson. And they became reluctant, and I'm using big fat air quotes here, wives of the two Mm -hmm. men. This was an act of revenge against Wood for shooting Little Harp, right? So the women were essentially held captive for years. And some people would say, like, obviously in that earlier account I was reading you, that the women were as bad as they were. Like, they, it is a subject of much consternation, contention, and debate. Right, uh, Right. How in on it these women were. This group, the men and their wives, again, air quotes, along with a few other ruffians, settled in Nickajack. It was a Cherokee Chickamauga village, which is outside of current Chattanooga, Tennessee. And they lived there for about 10 years. Some sources say that during this time, both of the captive women became pregnant twice, and their children were killed by the harps. So we have a killing babies. Oh, they, they are killing babies left and right in all these legends. Like, that is a thing. They must have really killed at least one oh, baby. Yes, yes. Because... Like, it is everywhere, as far back as you can go. And apparently, people did not take kindly to it. Because if you want to make a villain, make him a loyalist, rapist, slave overseer, baby killer. Who joins the Indians when they raid white villages. Like, really? They're doing... And kidnaps military men's daughters. Oh, yeah. And carries them off. So, they did fight with the Chickamauga after the British surrender at the Battle of Blue Licks in Kentucky. Against Americans, again. They were big on against Americans. Uh, In the spring of 1797, they were living in a cabin on Beavers Creek near Knoxville. In that same year, Little Hart married a local girl, a minister's daughter named Susan Rice, and so he traded whichever of the women had been his wife over to Big Harp, who now had two wives. Wow. This is not a feminist episode. (laughs) So it seemed like they were more motivated by the actual violence than... Financial gain. Which they were having fun. Which makes them different from all the other highwaymen and land pirates and water pirates and air pirates and fire pirates. Air or, pirates. I don't know. Fire what, pirates? Whatever. It seems like all the elements had a pirate. I want to see a fire pirate. <laughs> so this is from a book called Natchez on the Mississippi, which is a very old book. They're discussing the harps. 
At the head of this grim procession strode little Wiley Harp and his brother Big Makaja Harp, a pair of twisted killers who disgusted even their allies in crime. Black-eyed, black-visaged men they went about with a scowl and a murder in their minds. The name Harp acquired fame all along the trace, from Tennessee Valley to the Natchez Bluffs. Sometime in the 1790s, Kentucky and Tennessee began to hear about the pair, with their two women, whom they seemed to interchange when the mood struck. They joined a band of outlaw Indians in killing, stealing horses, and firing farmhouses. From the start, the Harps used to take lives for the sheer delight of it, the gurgling blood in the throat, the high whine of a trussed-up prisoner as the knives dug into his abdomen. Settling in Knoxville, the couples operated a farm as a blind. Little Harp married a preacher's daughter, thus creating a larger stockpile of femininity for the two men. So, all the way back, we've got legends about, you know, this idea that they liked killing. Right. It was, like, a big theme. Mm-hmm. I think that's why, like, people like the first serial killer. Like, not the first, like, like you said, like, not the first bandit, but the first guy's just doing it for fun. Right. Or guys. Yeah. So, in 1798, they killed two men. And they developed this MO, which led people to kind of speculate that this was more than a hobby. Like, more than a means to an end, it was a hobby. They would disembowel their victims and then fill their abdominal cavities with rocks and sink them in rivers. So that that seemed odd to folks. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I can see that. So the next man they killed was named John Langford, who was traveling from Virginia to Kentucky, and he turned up dead. And a local innkeeper pointed the authorities to the harps. They were pursued, captured, and then jailed in Danville, Kentucky, but they escaped. And then Posse was sent after him. It was funny. I was reading an older book about this. Someone from the 20s, we'll quote the book later. He was doing like really heavy research, like looking at original sources. And he's like, you know, I found all of the bills by the jail that they were sending to the government or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, for the extra men to guard the harps. Oh, no. Yeah, they had like five men there in the jail. And... They were like, you know, it was like six pence a day for the five men. So he was like, I can't find any records of them breaking out, but I can find a bill sent for repair of the jail. Oh, no. <laughs> I love historians. They're my favorite. <laughs> so the young son of a man who assisted the authorities was found dead and mutilated. Then the Kentucky governor put out this $300 bounty for each harp. Money. Per harp. So this happened in se- April of 1799. They fled north and killed two more men, Edmonton and Stump. And then when they were near the mouth of the St. Celine River, they came upon three men who were camping there, and they killed all three of them. And then they went to Cave in the Rock. That's like their hideout. Cave in the Rock is a legendary place in its own right. Like, it has a million stories attached to it. To me, like, I wonder if that was some inspiration for Mark Twain. Oh. For Injun Joe's hideout. Oh, I'm sure. I'm Almost positive. It's gotta be. It's gotta <laughs> but there be. were there were similar hideouts kind of in Oklahoma too. So I don't know. So they joined this river pirate named Samuel Mason. Okay, a river pirate's a real thing, <laughs> not a fire pirate. Fire pirates. I'm a fire pirate. Keep dreaming. <laughs> big dreams like the harps. Dream big and little. No, <laughs> that's terrible. You're terrible. So Samuel Mason. Let's talk a little about him. I'm gonna go back to my Natchez on the Mississippi book. And he's going to talk a little bit about them going to Cave in the Rock. All of them turned up at a popular gathering place for highwaymen, Cave in the Rock on the Ohio. 
For a time, the Harps did well enough in the thieves' community, helping prey on parties of rivermen. But then it became too evident that they were revolting fellows. <laughs> they wallowed in murder, for murder's sake. They stood above their victims for hours, mouths parted in fascination at each detail of suffering. As they used knives to rip out organs or chopped off one finger and then another, or thrust sharpened bits of wood into the eyes. Oh, man. An incident is told of a little surprise, which the brothers arranged for their confederates, who were lounging below a cliff. Catching hold of a non-professional, the harp stripped him, lashed him tightly to the back of the horse, and forced it off the embankment. <sighs> the bandit stared up to see the steed pawing helplessly at the air, the man thrashing about. They heard screams and a heavy crunch as the horse and rider were in their death agonies. <laughs> Again, the harps came to a rural couple atop a hill. Without a sound, they leaped forward and kicked them off. All this was entirely too much of a good thing, and the more conventional outlaws ran the harps away. <laughs> if they think you're too much, you know you're too much. Guys, guys, I know we're, like, doing a thing here, but, like, it's a lot. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's, I mean, I know it's what we do, but they do it. They like it. <laughs> like the sticks under the nails? I, I mean, mean, is it necessary? I just want the guy's gold. I just wanted to be a pirate. I just wanted to be a pirate. Exactly. So, barely disturbed, the brothers moved on, gouging and slashing. They also indulged in child killing. They once were have known to cut a small girl to inch-long bits. And once, Big Harp, exasperated at the crying of his own baby, caught it by the heels and bashed the skull against a tree till it burst into a dozen pieces. Later, he said of all his homicides that he really regretted that one. So that's possibly a source for this. Right. For the legend. And that is big heart too. Yes. Specifically. Yes. So yes, apparently the child killing legend precedes them. But that was out in the woods and like a cave or something. Nowhere near King's King's Tavern. I'm not certain that Big Harp specifically ever made it to Natchez. He didn't. I don't believe he he did. He didn't. So when they were kicked out of the Mason gang, they went to eastern Tennessee. They killed a farmer by the name of Bradbury, a man named Hardin, a boy named Coffee, and soon more bodies were discovered, including that of William Ballard, who had been disemboweled and thrown in the river. And there was also James Brassel, who had his throat viciously slashed and was discovered on Brassel's knob. And there was another man named John Tully that was also found murdered by the Harps. In south-central Kentucky, John Graves and his teenage son were found dead, with their heads beaten in with axes. Uh, They also killed a little girl and a young slave, an entire family who were asleep in their camp. The thing that brings them down, like the most well-sourced, murder story involving the harps probably the closest to fact we're going to get here yeah yeah (laughs) so still with a grain of salt still grain of salt so this involves a man named stagall so this is from the book you were talking about yes from the 1920s so this is an oldie bit of goodie stagall was absent but his wife and their only child a boy of four months were at home and in only a few hours before admitted major william love a surveyor who had come to see the stagalls on business Mrs. Stigall, expressing an opinion that her husband would return that night, invited him to remain. He climbed the loft above on a ladder on the outside of the house and was in bed when the new arrivals entered the cabin. Stigall, at one time, lived in Knox County, Tennessee, 
and had evidently become acquainted with the harps for mrs de gaulle knew them but had received instructions from the harps never to address them by their real names in the presence of a third person major love came down and met the two men little suspecting who they were in the conversation that followed the murderers themselves inquired about the harps and among other things stated that according to rumour the two outlaws were then prowling around the neighbourhood mrs de gaulle having only the one spare bed in the loft was obliged to assign it to three men after major love had fallen asleep one of the harps took an axe which he always carried in his belt and with a single blow dashed the brains of the sleeping man the two villains then went down to mrs de gaulle's room she knowing nothing to the contrary presumed major love was still asleep while reprimanding her for assigning them a bed with a man whose snoring kept them awake they proceeded to murder her and her baby after gathering some bedding and clothing among which was major love's hat and leaving the three bodies in the house they set it afire it was a smoking ruin such briefly is the account of the killing of mrs de gaulle as was given by writers who describe this tragedy and is still told in western kentucky by those who are familiar with local tradition brazil however published some details that are very characteristic of the inhumanity of the harps but which are not woven into any of the other versions they are probably omitted for the reason that the accounts are sufficiently gruesome without them because of the possibility that such brutality might be questioned this version has it that on the morning the harps burnt the stagall's house they arose and asked miss stagall to prepare breakfast for them she consented to do so explaining that since her child was not well and she had no one to nurse it the meal would necessarily be somewhat long in preparation the men suggested that she place the baby in the cradle and let them rock it this she did after mrs stagall had prepared them breakfast the ruthless and savage murderers had partaken of her hospitality she went to the cradle to see if the child was asleep expressing some astonishment as mckijah harp acknowledged when he was afterward taken that her child should remain quiet for so great a length of time she beheld her tender harmless and helpless infant lying breathless with its throat cut from ear to ear but the relentless monsters stayed not their bloody hands for the tears of the heart-broken wailings of a bereaved mother they instantly dispatched her with the same instrument a butcher knife with which they had cut the throat of her child and then set fire to the house and fled so maybe that is some of the origin of the tale at king's tavern too the crying baby like here i'll take care of it boom dead <laughs> i think they probably killed a lot of babies i think so too i think you, you could probably pull up 20 stories similar to the two we've told yeah I, I think that they must have done that publicly one time and forever been linked with it so whenever stagall the husband returned he found the smoldering ruins of the house and his family and friend and so he gathered up some local men and went out into the woods to capture the harps it was posse time posse time so this began the chase through the backwoods to find the harps the most accurate account of this chase of death was published in september of eighteen forty two in the western literary historical magazine stigall after reminding harp how unfeelingly he had murdered his wife and child drew a knife this is of course after they've captured him right and i think some of the details about the horse dying and that kind of stuff may have been accurate yes yeah, he was shot 
as he was fleeing. Fleeing. And so he falls to the ground off his horse and they're like capture him and standing over him. So he drew a knife and exhibiting it to him, he said in plain terms that he intended to cut off his head with it. I am, said the dying outlaw faintly, but a young man. But young as I am, I feel the death damp already upon my brow. When they had somewhat recovered from their fatigue of chase, after, perhaps, an hour's delay, during which Harp lay on the ground, on his right side, unable to, from weakness, raise himself, and rapidly ebbing his life away, Stigall stepped forward and pointed a muzzle of his gun at his head of the expiring outlaw, who was conscious of the intention, and desirous, at least, of procrastinating it, dodged his head to and fro, with an agility unexpected to the beholders manifesting pretty plainly a strong disrelish to shuffle out this mortal coil. Perceiving this, Stigall observed, Very well. I will believe I will not, upon reflection, shoot him in the head, for I want to preserve that as a trophy, and thereupon shot him in the left side. And Harp almost instantly expired without a struggle or a groan. Stigall, with a knife he had so menacingly exhibited to Harp, now cut off the outlaw's head. Squire McBee, had with him a wallet, in which he had brought his provisions and a provender in one end of this. Stigall placed the severed head and some articles of corresponding weight in the other, and then slung it behind him across his horse, and all commenced their return. Thus died Big Harp, long the terror of the West, and his decapitated body was left in the wilds of Mullenberg County, as unsepulchred as his merited death was unwept and unmourned. The head was conveyed to the crossroads within a half mile of Robertson's Lick, and there placed in the forks of a tree, where for many years it remained a revolting object of terror. To this day, the place where the bloody trophy was deposited is known as Harp's Head, and the public road which passes by it from Deer Creek Settlement to the Lick is called Harp's Head Road. In subsequent years, a superstitious old lady of the neighborhood some member of whose family was afflicted with fits, having been told that the human skull, pulverized, would effect a certain cure, thus appropriated that memorable outlaw of the West. Oh my god. Someone stole his skull for medicine. Cool. But supposedly, like, as he lay dying, he confessed to some murders. Of course. Told some stories. Of course. Whatever. But, so, but Little Harp got away. Little Harp got away. He gets away. He was wily. Ah. Uh. So he sought out the Mason gang and rejoined them and started going by the alias John Sutton. So he rejoined up with the Mason gang. Oh, before we move on, I have to tell you another dying words of heart version. We can't leave it. This guy's really into gore. Again, this is my Natchez on the Mississippi. Blood spurted as from a small fountain, but the husband dug on as the man reached around the front harp, stared him full in the face and with a grim and fiendish countenance, exclaimed, You're a goddamn rough butcher, but cut on and be damned. Oh my god, yeah, right? I love it. I love it. <laughs> but yeah, he died. <laughs> so little harp gets out. He gets out. He joins back the Mason Mason, guy. yes. And like a lot of people say that Big Harp was the worst of the bunch. Little Harp was a shit. I, he I, was a skeevy shit. Yeah. He was a, a schemer. Wiley. He was wily. I mean, like, it fits. I see. I see it. So he joins up with Sam Mason. We're going back to our book here. Um, he was an enigmatic individual, a careful thief of good birth, 
who generally operated by efficient planning rather than bloody impulse, a Virginian. He had served honorably in the Continental Army. Some claimed him kin to the signer of the Declaration of Independence, a strapping fellow with a gift of convincing speech. He had a snaggletooth that gave him a slightly sinister look, winning to a great celebrity in other parts. He had moved down toward Natchez. Introducing less wasteful methods than his predecessors, Mason worked through spies and agents. In Natchez, he had a representative whose identity went unsuspected for years. Regarded as an honest merchant, Anthony Glass was seen often at King's Tavern and other popular places, talking trade over drink. He was a fence who kept renters ready to speed tidings of impending movements to listening ears. Growing bolder with success, the game frequently identified themselves as Mason's men, and several times, when they killed a man, they scrawled cards in his gore, proclaiming the work is theirs. Uh. Mason enjoyed confronting an individual in the forest and announcing who he was and watching the victim tremble. Not infrequently, he would let them escape in a shower of bullets. So then they began to work around this area called the Devil's Punch Bowl, which is a thing. Devil's Backbone, Devil's Punch Bowl. Lots of devils. 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 Fire pirates. Devils which, are fire pirates. Which is... Okay. <laughs> and the witches, the air pirates? Yes! Okay. Told you all the pirates. Okay, so this is uh, apparently like this really deep hole. <laughs> right. <We're> just, <laughs> like, it, it's on private land now, so can't you go can't see go see it. it. <laughs> if you're the owner of the Devil's Punch Bowl, uh, we'd like an invitation to your property, please. Okay. But so he begins to work there and he establishes several intelligent assistants and coaches them. At the water's edge, he'd send them out, his little double agent people, and they'd pose as farmers holding up produce for flatboatmen. Like he's fishing for them at this point. Nice. And then sometimes he would send a girl down there to scream. Oh no. That's and so terrible. that would he would lure the flatboatmen over to near the devil's punch bowl. And when they got off their boats to come help or come buy potatoes or whatever, he would kill them, steal everything they had, strip them naked, and throw them in the punch bowl. Throw them in the punch bowl. Hell of a scheme. So then, as the scheme gets more successful, Mason's too big for his britches now. Of course. Bounty. Of course. Who's going to claim the bounty? Wiley Coyote. (gasps) Wiley Harp. Whatever. That guy. He's going to claim the bounty. So he, one night while Mason is sleeping, takes his tomahawk okay, and chops his fucking head off. There's a lot of that going on. Well, you have to have something to show that the guy's dead, right? Like, if you want to claim the bounty, you're going to need, apparently, (laughs) their dismembered head. It's just obvious. So So they go into town now with their head, not their head, Mason's head. They've covered it in river clay to preserve it. It's not working well. Oh, wow. It's not working. It's gross. No one really believes it's Mason. And so they're passing themselves off as honest farm folk. And they hand over the relic, the grizzly relic, the writer says. Many were dubious that it was Mason. Besides, the public treasury was bare. The gentlemen must wait. They waited too long. From the crowd, a barkeep stepped up. That's Little Harp himself. Oh, shit. The barman had recognized a horse stolen by the villain. This did not seem a full identification until a riverboatman moved forward. He knew how to make sure. Years ago, he'd gotten into a scrape with Little Harp and stuck a knife into his chest. 
If it was Harp, they'd find a scar under his left nipple. Oh no, is there a scar under his left nipple? The prisoner bared his teeth. They'd better keep their hands off him. The mob pushed closer. He struggled as two sheriff's assistants ripped his shirt off. For a moment, they made out no mark on the black matted chest. Oh, it's too manly. Then the sheriff pushed aside the hair, and there was a thin white scar. Early in September of 1804, near Springfield, where Andrew Jackson and Rachel were married, they hanged the pair. <laughs> Pointed poles were raised and their heads stuck up in warning. Oh, God. Nipple like, scar! <laughs> Andrew Jackson! Andrew Jackson's wedding to it. It's wonderful. So this is from another book, our other book, our 1920s book. The headless bodies of Little Harp and James May continued to lie in their double grave near the Natchez Trace as time rolled on. The narrow trace widened. And as roads frequently do, it wore deeper into the slight elevation over which it led. About the year 1850, this widening and deepening process reached the fleshless bones in the solitary grave, and the two skeletons protruding piece by piece from the road bank were dragged out by dogs and other beasts until the highway widened beyond the grave and the burial site became part of the ditch along the Natchez Trace. Fitting place for them. So one of the areas that a lot of these outlaws like to frequent was Natchez Under the Hill. Still there. Still there. It's not like gift shops and things. Fancy stuff. But Natchez is built on bluffs along the Mississippi. Beautiful views. But down at the bottom of the bluffs is where all of the ruffians would stay. I mean, that's where you would stop your boat if you were coming down and where a lot of shipping happened and pirating pillaging pirating. exactly so it's the rough part of town so min- there are many kind of outlaw ghost stories around town especially in natchez under the hill one apparition is that of a man in a military uniform he is thought to be an american spy who gave secrets to the spanish when they ruled the territory dick and there are supposedly the ghosts of several Spanish soldiers also seen nearby. I think it's funny that I keep taking the American side in this conflict because, like, Spanish were actually my people. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, the asshole. I can't believe. It was probably like my grandfather. <laughs> taking notes. Very possible. All right. So Spanish soldiers. Yes. But bad spy man. Spy we, that guys. seems like an identity yeah. we can trace. Who's that fella? I mean, you know, we can't trace it. <laughs> well, I'm, yeah. Sure. So there is, there's a really interesting guy that is tied to this area that I think, you know, let's say there's a ghost. <laughs> could be, could be the tarnished warrior. You know, if it were not for you, I think I'd have my own lifetime medium show by now. <laughs> you keep me from going full on ghost. All right, so who's the dude? Tell me about the, the tarnished dude. warrior. The tarnished warrior. His what name a great name. James Wilkinson. Like Wilkinson County. Exactly. Okay. Which we drove through. We on the drove way. through it. <laughs> That's who it's named after. Cool. So during the Revolutionary War, he was sent with Benedict Arnold. I know that one. To besiege Quebec. You know how that went? Mm-hmm. It went so well that Benedict Arnold's name is now synonymous with the idea of being a traitor. <laughs> Well, Wilkinson was indicated as part of the Conway Cabal. Like indicted? Or like No. Indicated. Okay. Suspected. Which is the conspiracy to replace George Washington as commander in chief of the Continental Army with Horatio 
gates. Well, that won't do. No, so he was George Washington's god. I've seen the ceiling of the Capitol. Yet. Okay, sorry. So he's eventually forced to resign. So he's caught up in conspiracy, and now he's the tarnished warrior. Oh no! Oh, he does more. Oh no! So he is forced to resign, and on August twenty second, seventeen eighty seven, he actually signs an expat declaration and swears allegiance to the King of Spain. He sends a coded letter to the Spanish governor outlining the joining of Kentucky, which is kind of where he's from, with Spanish Louisiana. What? He wants to set up trade between Kentucky and Spanish Louisiana. Because at the time, there was this huge tariff, 25%, on anything traded with you know the U.S. and territories mm. with Spanish Louisiana. And so he wanted to... You know, have a special relationship. Very special friendship. This guy's like a dog with a bone. He cannot stop worrying about it. Like, he's all—he's addicted to doing shady shit. So he becomes kind of a spy, one could say, for the Spanish colonial officials, offering advice to them on how to contain American expansion in exchange for a pension. So today, we would call that a consultant but you'd have to register as, as an agent of a foreign government. <laughs> yes. Farrah violation. This dude's cooked. He even tipped off the Spanish on the what Lewis and Clark were up to. That dick. So this guy. Again, probably my side he's working for. <laughs> Theodore Roosevelt later said was, in all our history, there's no more despicable character. Oh, well, he didn't see the sequel. So in 1804-05, he became friends with this guy named Aaron Burr. Fuck me. Like, he's just like, he's like a pinball machine of all the, I mean, like, he is the diplomatic equivalent of the Hart Brothers. It's like, what else could I fuck up? Like, it's ridiculous. So he, like, sided with Burr on Burr's conspiracy, Mm -hmm. which we'll get to. They exchanged letters, which was not good for Aaron Burr because in 1806... Does he trade, then, like, turn on Burr? He sends Jefferson... Motherfucker. Thomas Jefferson. A letter painting Burr's actions in the worst possible light, portraying himself as innocent of any involvement, and Jefferson orders Burr's arrest. So this dude... Which should be stated, while there was murmurings, no one knew Wilkinson was in the pocket of the Spanish government. So what is he now, like a quadruple crosser? Like, I can't even keep... Like, he's a Chrissy Crosser. He's a Chrissy Crosser. Tarnished warrior. He's a tarnished warrior, for sure. Like, this just proves to me that Nixon did not invent dirty tricks. <laughs> oh, no. So you got Aaron Burr and Benedict Arnold from the beginning. It's like, you know my voice, Benedict Arnold, Aaron Burr, I roll mad deep, yo. Like, come on. So, Wilkinson's treasonous ways were not actually proven until 1854, when the Louisiana historian Charles Guerre published his correspondence. Mmm. Ah, I see. So, before they had all these coded letters, and they didn't know who was writing them, and all that, and so they kind of finally figured it out. One historian characterized him as a general who never won a battle or lost a court-martial. He's despicable. I mean, like he did as much wrong as one could do, but this was not discovered during his lifetime. He just lived out his life. Yeah, yeah. He, you know, he betrayed Burr. And speaking of Burr... <laughs> speaking of Aaron Burr. A few miles to the east of Natchez is the historic Jefferson College. On its campus are the Burr Oaks. 
That Burr. Aaron Burr. This is where the trial of Aaron Burr for treason occurred. One of them. <laughs> After Thomas Jefferson sent for his... Arrest. Arrest. Like, Based on the word of Wilkinson. Wilkinson. And Wilkinson is supposedly seen at Nash's Oh, no. That, no one's ever said that. Okay. I've not read that anywhere. Okay. I, I'm saying that. <laughs> I think he's I think it's possible. So let's back it up on Aaron Burr. Okay. A minute. So, vice president, all that stuff. But, and of course... Duel, 1804. Kills Alexander Hamilton. Let's take a shot. (laughs) So, you know. Hamilton, for that information. But many Americans considered Burr no better than a murderer. And so he decided that he was going to start his own colony in the newly acquired Louisiana Territory. Eye roll. Serious eye roll. So in 1805, Burr leased 40,000 acres of land known as the Bastrop Track, along the Washita River in Louisiana. He had plans to create an army and personally invade Mexico, which was still a Spanish colony. I mean, dream big and little. It's one of those things, like, it depends on what side of the coin you fall. Some people are like, he was going to expand America. And a lot of people are like, he was going to create his own country. He was going to create his own country. He was pissed at America. So he had his plan in place. He had to get all the pieces in line. He needed backers. He needed an army. He needed men. He was going to first create this community and then expand westward and take, you know, Mexico, which was Texas. It was Texas Mm -hmm. now. So he's just a visionary. Right. He He just manifest destiny called him early. So he left on his journey towards Louisiana to start his trip. He... His first stop was Philadelphia in March of 1805, where he secured an interview with Anthony Mary, who was the British ambassador to the U.S. And he wanted to see if he could bring the British on board to assist in separating the Louisiana Territory from the United States. So basically, he was just expanding the United States. What? (laughs) Mary reported details of his conversation in a letter to London, wherein he wrote that Burr had mentioned to him that, quote, the inhabitants of Louisiana seemed determined to render themselves independent of the United States, and that they were hindered only by the necessity to obtain an assurance of protection and assistance from some foreign power. I mean, just like any foreign power would do. But you guys, we're special friends. Aren't y'all pissed off, guys? <laughs> so then he stops in Cincinnati and meets with Jonathan Dayton. Who was the youngest man to sign the United States Constitution. And a former senator from Ohio. And, and he, Dayton, Ohio, yeah, is named after yeah, him. Yeah. yeah. And he got things. his support. And he would later be disgraced as a Burr co-conspirator. Fun, but it's still called Dayton. He then stops at the Hermitage. Oh, we know that one. That's where Andrew Jackson and Rachel lived. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. And he gets the support of Andrew Jackson. What the fuck? How did that not get written down somewhere? How was he president? He is made of Teflon. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing sticks to that guy. Original Teflon Don, motherfucker. Like, come on. How long? I did not know this. This upsets me on a fundamental level. (laughs) You were listening to me find out that it was worse than I thought. So then, you know, going along as I, he finally meets up with General Wilkinson at an old fort in southern Illinois, where Burr procures from Wilkinson an elegant barge, sails, colors, ten oars, with a sergeant and ten able faithful hands, and a letter of introduction to the government of New Orleans. It's going to come in handy. 
But just as Burr is on the precipice of achieving his goal and separating the West from the United States and establishing himself as some kind of king governor thing under the direction of the Spanish crown, it begins to unravel. No! After a near incident with Spanish forces at Natchitoches... I know that place. That really is my people. That probably was my relatives. That probably was, yeah. Wilkinson decides that he doesn't want to piss the Spanish government off and turns Turns Burr into President Jefferson, telling him that there was a, quote, deep, dark, wicked, and widespread conspiracy Which I had no part in. None at all. I didn't give him a beautiful, elegant barge. He just found it. Lying around. He stole my barge. (laughs) Well, that's too much. (laughs) I mean, starting your own country, I've done that. I get that. But stealing a man's barge? So, Burr was 30 miles north of Natchez when he learned of Wilkinson's treachery. Did he go kill him? He should have gone and killed him. He knew that there was tons of militia just sitting there waiting for him. So he's got to turn around. He's got to turn that barge around. But he can't go north of the Mississippi. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, no, no. He stops and basically, after talking with the people in Natchez, kind of gives himself up. Remember, Natchez is home to... Oh, it's the Tories. It's the Tories. Tories. The loyalists. His buddies. Guys, they just talked me into that whole America thing. I totally see where you're coming from now. I get it. I get it. So he was arrested, quote, and pretty much given free reign. Right. And he was able to kind of just wander around Natchez. So... (laughs) They did do the big jury trial uh-huh. at the Burr Oaks. And how'd that go? Um, it was packed with Federalists and Friends of Burr, so he was free. And they're like, you're not guilty. And this is just a unconstitutional usurpation of police power by the federal government. This was just a cause for the enemies of our glorious Constitution to rejoice. It's a quote. So this is just governmental overreach? Trying this is governmental to overreach. This is ridiculous. Unconstitutional. So he was... This is the deep state? Exactly. <laughs> they like tried to put him on trial again. He, I mean, he runs away, basically, after lots <laughs> of away, stuff. Yeah. Okay. He disguises himself as a riverboat captain. You mean a fire pirate? Yes. And crosses the Mississippi River into Louisiana. No man's land. Wait, every man's land. Wait. <sighs> so so confusing. No one's sure what his next plans were. Many thought that he'd originally planned to take Baton Rouge. Oh, that would have been cool. But that was, of course, thwarted by Wilkinson's betrayal. Some thought he was planning to settle this land that he had bought slash leased from the Spanish government. And he'd even drawn up plans to build a road between his land, Natchitoches, and Nacogdoches. And that would have ra- been helpful. And, you know, like, raise a militia there and proceed westward. That would have changed the course of my life. But it looks like he changed his plans because he was talking about maybe taking mobile instead and taking spanish florida and jackson's like i got that bro and maybe the british were gonna help him do it jackson's like no man i got that no really i got that (laughs) there's a little bit of evidence too there because there there are some meetings he had with some government officials government officials (laughs) we did do that too and even more evidence is that he was captured in what is now alabama when he was recognized through his disguise do you have like the glasses or the mustache probably so and he was arrested and then sent under armed guard to richmond virginia under the orders of thomas jefferson oh not where you want to be if you're aaron burr to be tried 
And so, you know, he stayed with his friends while he was in Natchez and he kind of had free reign. So in one of these articles, there was something that just like piqued our interest. Said, in front of the Windy Hill Manor is Madeline's Walk, where Aaron Burr courted the lovely Madeline Price. And so I went back and I looked again to see if I could find anything about this story. Right. And it did. And it's a bodice ripper, let me tell you. I'm so excited. So now for some romance. We've had our blood and gore. Yes. Gotta get our our gone with the wind moment on. All right. In January of 1806, the short and wiry Burr was desperate. From a place of greatness, he had dropped almost into disgrace. He had been vice president. By one vote, he had lost the presidency to Jefferson. Afterward came the hapless duel in which he killed Alexander (laughs) Hamilton. He must score a comeback or sink into obscurity. And if Aaron Burr hated one thing above all others, it was obscurity. Natchez became his goal. With mixed forces he gathered. For months, America had stirred with rumors about him. Just what he wanted is still a mystery. He seldom offered two men the same story. Speaking in eloquent tones, his bright eyes shining, he hinted and paused significantly, and his listeners drew their own conclusions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he appeared to be only... So he, the, then he's like... In jail. In Natchez. Not right? in jail. Right. He appeared to be only a good citizen, hoping to colonize it with families he brought along. His devices had many facets. Men grew dazzled as the magnetic one gestured, and Burr had no trouble in convincing himself that they were his. General Wilkinson of the American Army would be at his side, he felt sure. Even Andy Jackson, he believed, favored certain of his designs. And now, was Burr the object of fear and scorn among Natchezians? Oh, on the contrary. Planters competed with graceful compliments, receptions, and dinners. Colonel Benajah Osman, a friend of the Revolutionary Days, took Aaron and his plantation at Halfway Hill. The wooden house topped a slow rise, surrounding by widening ravines, gashed into the red earth. That gave a look of wildness to the locale. A double line of cedars followed the slope provided an approach with a sweeping vista. It took hours over widening and climbing roads to reach the awesome place, and this suited Aaron Burr. Here, he worked to extricate himself from his problem, dispatching notes in cipher and receiving many mysterious guests. Yet he had moments of leisure at Halfway Hill, and where Burr went, ladies were seldom far behind. Though he had reached 50, it would be some years before women failed to find the dark, well-knit man anything but prepossessing. Oh. His sensitive nostrils quivered. Oh. <laughs> the eyes changed, and the ladies caught their breath. And? This time he chose none of the Natchez widows or debutantes who fluttered at his brisk footstep. Aaron discovered what he wanted close at hand. Strolling along the paths of Halfway Hill, he passed an aproned girl, barely twenty, Madeline Price. She had a virginal beauty, a head of brown curls and features so impressive that men later turned to stare at her on the streets of great cities. At this time, however, Madeline had a handicap. She was poor, very poor. (laughs) On a nearby elevation set a cottage in which she lived with her mother. Earlier they had come from Virginia with Madeline's father. In his purse he carried all their means, and on the highway 
A highwayman leaped from a bush and shot him dead before them and then escaped with their money. Dragging themselves to the town's outskirts, the widow and daughter held on as best they could. If Naren knew anything, it was women. He stood silent, oh, did he? deeply respectful at their first accidental meeting. Madeline, coloring, went by. Quickly, Aaron arranged with Colonel Osam to meet these neighbors. He invited the widow and the daughter to dinner. He accepted their invitation to tea. As she listened to the flow of his words, Madeline interrupted occasionally to ask about the crowded world she had never seen. Aaron found that Madeline had never had a bow among the plantation boys. They had asked permission to call and Madeline declined. Later, perhaps, she had been very right, the expert Aaron Burr assured her. I think I saw this Hallmark movie. Suddenly, it became evident that Madeline had been awakened for the first time. Over her soft face, there came a glow that none had ever seen. Her shy, gray eyes following Aaron's had lost their (laughs) calmness. Suddenly, there were many to see and talk about. Bad roads or no bad roads, tidings traveled like the movements of redbirds. Friends whom the prices had not met in months called at Halfway Hill with jellies and ginning of good wishes. On the road, noses pressed against carriage glass to spy the pair as they walked beneath the tips of the hanging moss along the sun-spotted passages around the hill. For once, Aaron did not have his complete way. Madeline smiled at his compliments then moved ahead along Colonel Osom's terrace garden. That was all. Her innocence proved a defense that not even the resourceful Burr could penetrate. Halfway hill, did he swear himself that the name was an apt one? The chaste... Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> oh my god, Samantha. I want to hear your bodice reverse Yes, you do. There's more. There's more. There's more. There's more. The chase took on a new interest. This is an explicit warning on this one. The chase took new. Gotta let me tell you about the the chase. Tell me about the chase. The chase took on new interest as the story goes. Aaron, the boudoir dilettante, (laughs) found that for the first time he had fallen in love. Nervous as a college boy, he asked her to marry him. Flushing, Madeline thanked him. Yes, she loved him, she admitted, and she was more flattered than he realized. But wouldn't it be better first to see what happened to Aaron? To every argument, she shook her brown curls, and finally Aaron knew for once a woman minute when she said they'd wait. So the trial starts. This is all going on while he's waiting Mm -hmm. to be put on trial, and he has kind of free reign over the area the hearing went into a hubbub and nobody knowing what to do with the polished rascal (laughs) at last the judge ordered aaron to remain within reach indefinitely aaron grew disturbed they were trying to hook him on another line were they he hesitated while his advisers gave anxious anxious counsel he had best get out of here and quickly after some days he agreed with dusk he went up to the hill and to madeline if she loved him she would ride away with him tonight They could be married at the first opportunity, and she would see the world at his side. Still, with her mother listening in the next room, Madeline demurred. When the matter ended, she told him, then he could come for her. Did she fear her gallant would not make her his wife? Or was Madeline simply a shrewd young lady who knew precisely how she wanted things to be? 
Burr kept up his ardent pleas, importunate one moment with an air of hurt pride the next. While his friend Colonel Olson nervously waited outside, dawn had come, and shaking his head, Aaron left. Waving from her window, Madeline called out she'd be there when he came back, and silently Aaron rode off. Many miles away, he Into was... the sunset? <laughs> mm-hmm, no, to capture. Many miles away, he was captured again, and the case collapsed. But now, Burr was a ruined man who must slip away in the dark, fleeing to Europe. He realized that his career had forever ended. For several seasons, Madeline walked alone along their favorite paths, and late one evening, a message arrived. Ripping it apart, she read the lines. She must forget him, he said. He might have to stay overseas, forever. Like another individual of twisted plans, Aaron gave her advice. She should enter a convent. Oh, wow. Then, shade, this Ophelia got herself to no nunnery. <laughs> she cried at first, of course, and then, walking beneath the mossy trees, she decided that her life was not over, and she kept thinking about the, that delightful world that Aaron had outlined for her. Her mother died, and when a woman friend offered to take Madeline on a trip to Havana, she accepted at once and she met numerous gallants. One British officer, the owner of the biggest business on the island, followed her back, and this time Madeline said yes. So, of course, questionable veracity of that story. I think he was a boudoir dilettante. How do we know? I mean, like, why wouldn't he be? Maybe in your dreams. I think it's hilarious. So funny. So, of course, he did get taken back to Richmond. He was put on trial for treason. He was still deemed not guilty, and he did flee to Europe, and he eventually came back to New York and, under a pseudonym, practiced law till he died. Womp womp. Womp womp. But (laughs) there is this Madeline's Walk thing, which is not talked about anymore, because Windy Hill Manor no longer exists. It was torn down years and years ago. Oh, there's some great stories about the last people that lived there. It was apparently like three sisters. Of course. And they had a timer. They'd sit in the middle of the table and they would take turns talking and no one could interrupt while the timer no. was going. Like, they were apparently crazies. Um, there's a lot of crazies. There's a lot of crazy. But there's this Madeline Walk thing. And the reason I'm so stuck on it is there's no mention of Madeline attached to King's Tavern prior to the 1980s when it was bought up by the Natchez Garden Club and restored. So one of the big ways this story got out is there was a National Enquirer story. Oh, God. Fuck you, David Pecker. That Sylvia Hubbard wrote, Enquirer reporter's night of terror in a haunted inn, face to face with a ghost. Swinging chains and a shadow figure sent chills up my spine. I spent a terrifying, sleepless night in one of America's most haunted buildings, and I saw the ghost of a woman who was murdered there 200 years ago. So, if it's in the National Enquirer, we assume that it's true. It must be true. It's true. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. (laughs) And there's no reason to think that any lusty affair between a tavern wench and the tavern owner was thwarted by what? Like, there's just no record for that. There's no record. But the thing that really tells me that it was made up in the 80s is there's no mention of even the story prior to the 80s. Right. There's this story, though. So, in a 1974 article... Uh, in the Natchez Democrat, Thomas Young, who grew up and when it was a home, said, My mother Hilda died when I was two years old, and my grandmother has told me many times of a misty figure of the veiled woman in a cloak with head bowed and hands folded, which stood at the foot of her bed at night after my mother's death. 
So Hilda's a contender. Elizabeth, Hilda. Elizabeth, Hilda. There are a lot of other female ghosts that are mentioned. But, that's but none are loves, lusty yes. tavern winches. Yes. That just all seems to be kind of made up in the 80s, you know, when it was redone. Well, and I find that interesting because it's like when you lose Wendy Hill, you lose Madeline. You lose Madeline Price. Right. She's gone. That story is nowhere. I mean, we dug deep to find that. Yeah. And so maybe they just moved it. You know, like maybe. Well, the Hart Brothers story was just moved. Right. Yeah, this is interesting. And of course, there are many thwarted love stories among the Natchez Trace, such as a pair of Cherokee lovers. The Cherokee soldier was promised to run away with the lovely Cherokee maiden. But when he saw his true love talking to a white soldier, he thought he had been betrayed. Distraught, the Cherokee man threw himself off a large rock overlooking the creek. Heartbroken, his maiden jumped as well. And to this day, the rock is known as... Lover's Leap. Yeah, which of course that's like 100% made up. But the Natchez Trace is continues along in history. We're still in the early 1800s. <laughs> that as extremely important. It's used during the War of 1812. Mm-hmm. And the Creek War. Uh, it's Horsey Ben. That's Red Sticks and Massacres. Yeah, and Andrew and Jackson brings his men down from Tennessee down to Alabama. By the by. By the by. By the by. You ever gotten so mad in a museum you had to step outside for a moment? Oh, God. <laughs> when we went to D.C. recently, we went to... The Museum of the American Indian. Right. Smithsonian. The Smithsonian's, we're going to cover that for you moment. And so we're walking around the treaty room, which is probably like... I had a very visceral reaction to that in and of itself because it's like all these X's signed where people are just signing away their land, and I hate it. Anyway, but in the middle of it, they have fucking Andrew Jackson's pistol. Yeah, it just seems so distasteless. It is. It's in the middle of the Native American Museum. Andrew Jackson's pistol from the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. Yeah, it's like, hey, look, he killed a bunch of engines with this. (laughs) But it says he went there to to negotiate a treaty (laughs) between the two tribes. Like, it actually says this in the Smithsonian. This was only, like, a month or two after we just, like, deep-dive researched that, too, for the Ancient Indian Burial Ground episode. And, like, literally, I had to go sit outside. I was shaking. I was so mad. I was like, I'm going to write a letter. And I never wrote a letter because I don't even know where to start. Like, too angry. Anyway. Speaking of terrible things. Tell me again. Lost to history. So, the Natchez Trace was also used for something called the Slave Trail of Tears, and this oh, is something sounds, that is yeah. like so written out of history that once the kind of tobacco industry started to fade away in, you know, the Carolinas area and cotton was king. King cotton. A lot of the enslaved people were sold down the river. Down river. Literally where the term comes from. And so they were marched down that wilderness trail and down the Natchez Trace to work on the cotton plantations in Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. So this all took place you know, uh, about 50 years before the Civil War, and about a million enslaved people were moved from the Upper South to the Deep South. So another terrible piece of history tied to this area that's also just kind of written out. No one really talks about it. When we were in Natchez, we actually went to, the, to a place called Forks of the Road, and that is where the second largest slave market in the Deep South was. It was New Orleans and 
Natchez. Which it was there because of this. Because of this, exactly. And they have a really informative display there now. And they also have a an interesting memorial. It's just like a small square cement block with broken shackles. Yeah. Just in the cement. It's and pretty cool. It is. It's really interesting. It's small, very, you know, kind of. You wouldn't know it was there unless yeah. you were looking for it. But worth the drive if you're there. Yeah. So in 1817, the Natchez Trace traffic began to decline because there was a more direct highway linking Nashville and New Orleans, but also Steam the steamboats. Boat. By 1820, a paddle wheeler could make it upriver from New Orleans to Louisville in 15 days. That's that's better. Now, shockingly, we're not going to talk much about the Civil War. In 1863, Grant traveled up the Mississippi and marched up the Natchez Trace to conquer Vicksburg. Ugh, yeah, that was nasty. It was like very medieval, siege-like. True. 47 days. Yeah, it was rough. Awful. I mean, they were being dicks, but... So, north of Tupelo, where the last major Civil War battle was fought in Mississippi, there are 13 headstones facing away from the road. And they mark the graves of unknown Confederate soldiers. And no one knows why the tombstones are located there or why they face away from the trace. People have reported seeing spirits carrying bayonets marching along the path as if they are keeping sentry over their fallen soldiers. But Natchez wasn't burned. Many of the cotton barons didn't want to secede because they knew it was bad for business. Had nothing right. to do with it. Had nothing to do with trying to fight for the rights of the enslaved people. They just were all about the money, right? And they had deep ties to New England. A lot of them, uh, yeah, in the garment industry and things like that. And they were like, ah. Oh. Guys, you're going to totally disrupt my supply chain. This is a terrible economic plan. <sighs> yeah, so they were not fighting for the good of the slaves. They were fighting for the good of their pocketbook. Pocketbook. And um, so they made deals. They did. And pledged allegiance. And things. Also, there's a long-running, still to this day, I found out, rivalry between Vicksburg and Natchez. What about? Um, well, everyone in Vicksburg was basically like, Y'all some bitches for oh. not standing up for the Confederacy and just rolling over. And Yeah, because Vicksburg is like full of Confederate monuments. Yes. Like giant ones. They they probably got it the worst of anywhere in the South. Oh, they got it bad. Like they, they probably it did. Bad. Well, uh, Maybe Atlanta. Atlanta. No. It was bad. Fire pirate. <laughs> Fire pirates. We've got <laughs> we've made the full round. But yeah, so apparently Natchez and Vicksburg have always kind of been rivals and now Vicksburg is like really capitalizing on the his- their historic tourism. If you yeah. notice they they're like marketing oh, it yeah. more. And people in Natchez are pissed. That's funny. Like today, I find it very interesting. Gossipy little behind the scenes for you. But you're right, so Natchez is a huge like kind of tourist attraction town. It actually boasts 500 surviving antebellum structures from homes to churches and public buildings. You know, they were all built in the 1800s by all these slave owners, you know, on the backs of slaves and from the money that they got from those terrible actions. But they all survived because they were also turncoats (laughs) as well. So it's like as bad as you can get. Right. We're big in that trader thing today, right? Right. So you kind of mentioned the beginning of that, like, Natchez pilgrimage. Right. Which is what it's called. When, you know, people come down certain times of the year, like when it's like, what, fall? There's spring, one in the fall. Fall and spring. spring now. And all the homes are open and you can take tours of the homes. It still goes on today. And it started in the 30s. Mm-hmm. And as the story goes, it was supposed to originally be like a garden tour. 
Mm-hmm. And they had a late freeze, and all of the plants died. And they were like, let's go in the house. They like Someone suggested, and they were all like, we haven't updated our houses since the Civil War. And everyone was like, cool. Well, yeah, so everyone that came was like, cool. And that's what's kind of like started the idea of like going and touring these old antebellum homes. And so over the years, the Pilgrimage Garden Club has been helping refurbish homes and structures to their antebellum grandeur. Like I said, they bought King's Tavern, which was a house, and it was turned into King's Tavern. And that's when a lot of the newer ghost tales start, such as Madeline. But they have other homes they've restored, too. We stayed at Dunleith, and it is a fully functioning bed and breakfast. It also has a really cool restaurant on the property, and it's haunted AF. Yep. We had a ghost. Maybe. <laughs> I confirmed this look with at me you. Like that. I am looking at you like this. I confirmed this with you. First thing in the morning while you were still sleepy. <laughs> Damn it. And you were off. You're not supposed to talk to me before coffee. I know. It's not allowed. I'm pretty sure that's in our marriage contract. It was in our vows. Whoops. <laughs> Love you forever after coffee. Ditto. That's it. But yeah, we had a ghost. But wait, really, guys? Like, if we bitch at each other before coffee in the morning, it's like it automatically forgiven. <laughs> it doesn't count. And it happens one of us, like, once a week. No, we've not, like, formally agreed upon that either. It's just, like, what it's evolved to over yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. It's good. Just, you know, a little, little marriage tip, relationship tip. <laughs> Before coffee doesn't count. And if your partner doesn't drink coffee, give them some. They will be nicer. Right. What's wrong with them? <laughs> I hope a medical condition. But Dunleaf. Dunleaf. It was a cool house. It was a cool it's house. beautiful. We had a ghost. There's also Monmouth is one of the big ones in town. Um, it's like completely redone. And if you go to Natchez, that is where all of the places will try to make you stay. Stanton Hall is one of the big ones. Cherokee is one of the big ones. So Monmouth supposedly has ghosts. Um, it has like a Civil War soldier that'll come and check your boots. Oh, it's an interesting one. There's another one that was built on the grounds of the first fort in oh. Natchez. I think it's Rosalie is that one. Oh, right. right and it, right. it has some weird, strange goings on there. And one of the cool ones we visited was Longwood. Yeah, it was a very interesting experience. So it's also called nuts folly so plans for this giant octagonal mansion were drawn up in 1858 and construction began in 1860 (laughs) it was owned by dr haller nutt and he had an architect from philadelphia it was supposed to have more than a million bricks used for the construction this exotic oriental design with this onion top dome coppola it's very saint basil's and after it was bricked, it was going to be covered in stucco. It was going to have four main floors and a fifth-story solarium and a six-story observatory. It was designed to have 32 rooms. Connecting all the levels was going to be this grand spiral staircase. You know. The Civil War broke out. That whole declaration of secession thing. So all of their cotton plantations in Louisiana were burned. The nuts, the ones that the belong, nuts, yeah. the owners. Even though he was pretty sympathetic to the union cause, it seemed. Yeah, he was a union loyalist. But over a million dollars worth of his cotton land was burned or confiscated by the union soldiers. So he settled his whole family in the only finished part of the house, the first floor. 
He ran out of money, but also they had brought down a bunch of northern craftsmen to work on the house. Because the architect was from Philadelphia. And of course they had slaves, you know, making bricks and things like that. And that didn't keep happening. (laughs) Yeah. So his craftsmen joined the Union Mm -hmm. Army. The supply trains were not running. Uh, His labor force was no longer there. No longer forced to be there. And meh. Did not seem that the Grand Oriental Villa was going to come to fruition. But the the main structure had already been erected. And so he got a couple of local craftsmen to come in and finish out just the basement. Only the basement. <laughs> and that is where he and his family lived. And he slowly wasted away and he died of pneumonia a few years later. Some people say he died of a broken heart. I'm sure he did. Eventually, it was donated to the Pilgrimage Garden Club, who preserved it. And it's a national historic place. And I think it's interesting the reasoning why. Because they're never going to finish the building. Because they, you know, they furnished the bottom basement like it would have been probably when they lived there. But the top is unfinished and it's left unfinished on purpose to show just the effects of the war and to kind of almost show their life there. It is a very personal place. Feel like it was home. You know, like it felt like, I don't know, their story was so evident in the place. It was so obvious that they had had these grand aspirations that were thwarted by the Civil War. And it was so evident that they were profiting off something that couldn't be sustained and that they had dreamed bigger than they could accomplish. And it was like staying in like these like, beautiful mansion you know and seeing all these beautiful houses and then going to that i just think it like said so much to see this this brick and wood ostentatious house that was literally built just to show everybody up Mm -hmm. and to show just how much money he had and it's just how what a perfect story it is well and his wife julia continued to live there after his death with the i think it's eight children a bunch. Yeah. yeah. And our tour guide, who was fabulous. Oh, talk about she She good. knew her stuff, man. She did. Said that like in Julia's later correspondence, she talked about personally slaughtering a hog. Yeah. When you go out of the basement, you get to go up to the second floor. Um, and all of the tools and the shipping crates and the woodworking mechanisms it and was the, left. It's it just left where they they dropped their tools and went to war, basically, is the feeling you get. But when we were standing up there, she was like, and this would have been the ballroom, and that would have been the bandstand, and here's where the statues of the Four Seasons were meant to be, and this would have been marble, and that would have been it. And you just, this woman was supposed to have a bandstand and a ballroom, and here she is slaughtering a hog. It's very gone with the wind. Yeah. Um, I kept thinking about that, oh, God, I miss Tara thing. But the fall from, I don't even want to say grace, (laughs) but the the fall from prosperity. Antebellum uh, decadence. Yeah, decadence into the realities of raising eight children as a single woman living in the basement of the shell of your husband's after he dies. It was just, it's an incredible place, even if you're not into like visiting historical homes. Which I'm really not. I made, J- I made Jacob go. I went with my mom when I was younger. Well, that was the one I was like, I'll go see that. Yeah. That sounds cool. And it is. It's very interesting. It's just such a vision of a broken dream. And there's a cemetery. We walked out and saw that they are, that entire family is literally buried on the grounds of this 
unfinished monument to Southern Gothic <laughs> decadence. Speaking of Southern Gothic. Have I got a story for you. <laughs> so the best way to start telling this story is to tell it the way it was told at the time. Oh, please. Old newspapers. <laughs> Old newspapers. So this is from 1932. The title of the article, The Tragic Fate of the Southern Bell, Magazine Section. The investigation into the murder of Jane Merrill of Natchez, Mississippi is still going on. Three Negroes are held in jail and two elderly white people at the liberty of their own recognizance are still formally under charges of murder. A fourth Negro now in his grave has been identified as the actual murderer. One of the weirdest, most fascinating stories that the criminal records of the South ever disclosed is still the topic engrossing the interest all across Dixie. It is a story of odd shadows, of dark mysteries, a story such as William Faulkner might have written, compounded of queer passions and thwarted ambitions. Natchez, where it all happened, can't make head or tail out of it. It knew the principles in the case. It is familiar with the decrepit mansions where the action took place, but it is profoundly in the dark as to the actual sequence of events and their motivation. It knows only that the murder revealed a very odd state of affairs. Jane Merrill, to begin with, was 72 years old. She lived by herself in Glen Burnie, a beautiful old home in the old southern tradition on the outskirts of Natchez. She had a fair-sized fortune after her death, her estate was appraised for something like $175,000. Forty years and more ago, Jane Merrill was the queen of Southern society. She had been a Southern belle right out of the storybooks in her girlhood. Her father, Ayres Merrill, had been the American ambassador to Belgium. She was sought after by young men from the best families of the Old South. Famous men, including President Grant, had visited at Glen Burnie. Famous beauties had danced there. Two suitors seemed to be especially favored in those days long ago. One was Duncan Minor, a rich young planner, well-born and elegant, an acknowledged leader of the younger set and a descendant of Don Evanston Minor, governor of the colony of Louisiana under the Spanish. The other was Richard Dana, also well-born, the occupant of a mansion adjoining Glen Burnie and son of an Episcopal minister, and the nephew of the great Charles A. Dana of the New York Sun. But Jane Merrill never married either of them. Instead, many years ago, she abruptly retired from society. The doors of hospitable Glen Burnie were closed to collars. Windows were curtained. Miss Merrill was seldom seen any more. Down through the years of the 20th century, she clung to her old-fashioned dress of the post-Civil War era. Natchez saw her only when rarely she rode out from her estate in her old-fashioned baroche drawn by sleek black horses, a uniform coachman at the reins. She became, in short, a recluse. Of all her old friends, only Duncan Minor remained on friendly terms with her. He called at her house nearly every evening for a chat. The rest of Natchez stayed away. Save for a few old trusted servants, she lived alone in her mansion. And Dana, on the adjoining estate, underwent an even stranger metamorphosis. He, too, became a recluse. But where Miss Merrill had clung to the forms and dress of her younger days, Dana let all the forms and set styles and clothing go by the boards. He wore whatever clothing fell to his hand. His estate, a typical old-time southern mansion with a great gallery along the front and a row of slender white pillars rising above it, was permitted to go unrepaired. He lived next door to Miss Merrill, but their old friendship dissolved. They saw nothing of each other. He let his beard become long and unkempt. His estate grew up in weeds and underbrush. The roof of his house sagged. He had been a very popular young man and a skilled pianist. He'd gone to Vanderbilt. 
university, and he'd studied music in New York. And now he was a hermit living in a ruinous old house, wearing often nothing but a shabby pair of trousers and keeping a herd of goats as his only visible means of support. With him there lived Octavia Dockery, herself a figure quite bizarre as he. She too had been well-born, and she too had been popular in her youth long ago. Her father was Brigadier General T. P. Dockery of the Confederate Army. She'd gone to a finishing school in New York, and she'd known President Grant. She'd gained some fame as a writer of poetry. But her father died, and money became scarce, and she returned to Natchez to become a housekeeper for Dana. There was no hint of romance between the two. When Dana not long ago was declared incompetent, she was made his guardian, and handled his affairs. Now nobody in Natchez knew why these three people, Miss Merrill, Miss Dockery, and Dana, had become recluses, indeed, until the moment of the murder, up-to-date Natchez had almost forgotten of their existence. The murder? The murder. Murder? Murder. It seldom talked about them, almost never saw them. It drove past their houses now and then, admired their ancient loveliness of Glen Burnie, and looked in curiosity at the dilapidation of them. And now and then it saw the bearded Dana with his herd of goats, but it paid no attention to them. And that suited them all very well. Only Duncan Minor remained intimate with Miss Merrill, calling at her homes in the evenings, sitting in the parlor with her, where the flower of Southern society had gone to dance and be merry half a century ago. One night, not so long ago, Minor rode over to pay his evening call, and he found the door to Glen Burnie standing open. No servants answered his hail. It developed that they were off duty that night. He entered and found appalling scene within. Furniture was overturned, there were bloodstains on the floor and the walls, and the plaster had been knocked from the walls here and there by revolver shots. Oh, no. And there was no sign at all of Miss Merrill anywhere in the silent home. It was learned that Miss Merrill and the Dana Dockery menage had been in a bitter argument some days before, an argument over Dana's goats, which evidently <laughs> had been straying over to Miss Merrill's property. Oh, no. Fingerprints were found in the Merrill home. An expert called in by Sheriff Clarence P. Roberts, who was in charge of the investigation, reported that he had identified these prints of those of Dana and Miss Dockery. So Dana and Miss Dockery were leaders in Southern society in the days when Southern society was the most exclusive society in the United States, and later they became twin hermits living in a tumble-down mansion. And Miss Dockery were formally charged with the murder, but it didn't end the investigation. Minor and nearly everyone living in the neighborhood were questioned and fingerprinted, the bullets from Miss Merrill's body were turned over to a ballistic expert for examination, and another set of fingerprints in the house was found. The bullets were traced to a gun owned by a Negro, George Pearls, who sometimes went under the alias of Lawrence Williams. And Pearls, a short time after the murder, had been shot to death while resisting arrest on another charge in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. So that's the story. That's where we begin. That's the story? That's the story. That's the story. Okay, so let's see. Let's see our cast of characters, these fallen Southern Bells. So we have one of our fallen Southern Bells, Jane Merrill, who lived at Glen Burnie and whose family was very wealthy. They hung out with grants. Her dad was an ambassador. That's all true. All true. That's all true. There are other things that are not so true. <laughs> like what? <clears throat> she was not like a proper hermit. She was engaged in society and would speak to people. She didn't, like, shut the doors and go all this Haversham. That was nonsense. But she was murdered. That's also true. She's interesting because she was born in August of 1863, and Vicksburg had fallen on July 4th of 1863. 
the Union troops actually arrived in Natchez around the time she was born. So she's like a very good symbol for the generation of people that came after the Civil War. And I assume her dad was one of the turncoats. He was. Union sympathizers. He actually formalized his turncoatiness and went to Grant. Yeah. And pled for mercy and to be allowed to harvest his crops. And Grant said, sure. And later he made him the ambassador to Belgium. So did she go with her dad, like lived in Europe? She lived in Europe for a while. Her father became very ill, though, while they were overseas and kind of had to remove from his job. And when they came back, she settled in New England, more or less, and began doing philanthropic work. She was very concerned by the conditions of tenements and felt it was important to pay closer attention and reform the conditions for immigrant mothers. Oh, wow. That's it was great. kind of her cause. And she was very successful in uh, securing funding for new homes and places for these women to go with their children. She toured the country lecturing about it. It was a very much a passion project for her. But when she retired from that, she kind of tootled around the South a bit and then bought Glen Burnie and moved there. Okay. And then we have Duncan Miner. Duncan Miner was... A Southern gentleman. A Southern gentleman. And he remained a Southern gentleman. His family was also comprised of Union loyalists, but they did not move out of the South. However, they got to retain their plantations... Um, because they had been loyal. His mother, Kate, actually took over the running of the family plantation after his father died, and she was a very self-possessed independent woman and even listed like on the census that her occupation was plantation manager. Okay. She ran shit. And so I think Duncan may have actually had an appreciation for Jenny's lack of conformity, free spirit, not wanting to be you know, beholden to anyone. I think that that might have piqued his interest. So Froggy went a courting. Froggy went a courting and he did ride. Uh-huh. 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 So one might speculate that much too much was made of their relationship and there was actually nothing romantic there and this is just all newspapers, which is possible. Possible. But I have love letters. Yay. Apparently Jenny was a little bit of a fire pirate. Fire pirate. So in 1883... He wrote to her, It was such a trial to leave you, for I was having such a nice time. Notwithstanding the fact how little I saw you, I think that if I had remained there longer, I should have become bold. There is in Natchez. I see the senses of what you told me, and will do all in my power to please you in all things. As for smothering, I feel sure that I will never do it again, for it is foolish for a man to smother by love as I have been doing lately. Oh, he must have got told off. Mm Mm-hmm. And then in 1885, he wrote to her, My precious one, I trust that you are able to be up this morning, as I had so hoped that you would be yesterday. I have been thinking about you and wondering how you are ever since I got up this morning. So please let me know how you are, and I will be on my way this evening. With my whole love, always yours, Duncan Miner. Obviously, we only have his side of the correspondence, but I think a lot of us can infer what Jenny is saying here. He writes her later. I can't tell you how blue this separation makes me. Stop smothering me. Please write me how you are, my love, as my heart is so full that it is nearly breaking, and it is only you that can give me comfort. So even though she was definitely giving him the cold shoulder, by the time she settled in Natchez, he was a courting still? 
came a riding. Oh yes, I mean she, and it's obvious like she was very much like jerking him around. Another letter says, "Why do you write me so miserable, little?" I can't believe she kind of like accepted him to come over every day. Well. She bought Glen Burnie, which was directly across from his place. Ah, uh, well. <laughs> so I think that they had some kind of weird understanding, whatever. They were comfortable with each other. It made sense for them. By the time she settled in, she was in her 50s, I think. So It was more platonic. Yeah, whatever it was, it worked. He may have pursued her very heavily in their year. They were living out their golden years, and he was riding over and things and such. This would have been great. He finally had Miss Jenny there to himself. She had company, but not too much company. All was right with the world. But the neighborhood was going to hell in a handbasket. Why? Because the neighborhood was basically Glen Burnie and Glen Wood. Glen Wood, or as it came to be known in the papers, Goat Castle. Goat Castle? The home of Dick Dana and Octavia Dockery abutted the property at Glen Burnie. Why Dick Dana was living there is a complicated story in and of itself. When he failed to pay property taxes on the estate, it was his ancestral home. It was his inheritance. This is Okay. So the place came up for auction. And who bought it? Duncan Miner. Oh, okay. For $46. And then Dockery tried to appeal, Octavia Dockery, tries to appeal this and says that, no, 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 you need to give the house back. Basically, he's crazy. So she... Files a formal motion when Duncan's like, um, no, that's mine. It. Yeah. She files a formal motion and her legal standing is great. It's next friend of Dick Dana. Okay. Um, but I thought they were in a menage. A menage, whatever that <laughs> means. So citing his ill health of body and mind to such an extent, he was and is incapacitated to attend to his personal affairs, business or otherwise. So she wanted the property to be returned to the rightful owner. And Duncan fought her in court on this. He did not just give it back. He says that when he acquired the estate, Dana had been of sound mind. So there was a lunacy hearing. Wonderful. Held on February 6th, and he was found non-compass mentis. And the court appointed a guardian and ordered that Glenwood be returned to the crazy man. Octavia Dockery was the guardian? Not yet. Not yet. She would not be his guardian until 1923. So they return to Glenwood, and Octavia begins raising livestock. Pigs. Chickens. Goats. Goats. That's key. So the aforementioned animals roamed freely on the grounds of Glenwood, and much to Miss Jenny's dismay, they also roamed on the grounds of Glen Burnie. Oh, that will not do. And ate her lesbadiza. That will also not do. <laughs> Miss Jenny had a series of responses for when these animals made their way onto her property. She might shoot them. Oh, good. Well-tempered. Other times, she would hold the animals for ransom. Oh, well, okay. She would say that she needed to be compensated for keeping them fed and watered, and that whenever they felt like paying for them, they can come get them. And if that failed, she would sell them to other people. Oh, no. And then uh, her, her grand finale response was legal action. So she sued them. She sued them, and she sued them several times. Okay, for the goats. Hogs, mostly. The hogs were really the aggravation. She could not move them herself. She brought a suit in the same year that Dick Dana was declared a lunatic. In April of 1917, she filed a suit that went all the way to the Mississippi State Supreme Court. Of course it did. So as Jenny described four hogs and the damages that they caused to her property, she was quite snappy on the witness stand. At one point, she was being questioned by Dockery's attorney, and she decided that he had to be confusing this case with another suit in which he had represented Dockery 
that Jenny had filed. And she snaps, This is the pond in the corn suit, where the hogs came over and destroyed every bit of my corn. This is another suit entirely. I wish you would get these suits straight in your head. You don't know what you're trying. She added, I can't do anything over there for her hogs. I'm tormented to death with them. <laughs> now, Octavia was much more calculating and seemingly cool, and she would play up like not knowing the impact of things she said and just very much like tried to pull off this shrinking violent routine. And so when she was testifying, she says, as far as I know, Duncan Minor lives with Miss Jenny at Glen Burnie. And so she is just oh, outed, outed this man and this woman from respectable Southern society as living together out of wedlock in a room full of Southern lawyers. And she would say things like, oh, if I owned all the hogs reported to be mine, I'd be rich. So you can look at just the, the way they handled themselves in stressful situations and see that these two women are not going to get on well. And the court did not award any damages for the hogs' severe breaches in etiquette. But it does just seem like little trifles between neighbors. Doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Doesn't stay that way. I believe it. And that's it. That's the story. So... Who the hell are these people? This Dockery woman and the Dana man. So, Dana. He is very much, like, from a good family. He's got lots of famous relatives. Uncle's, like, the owner of the New York Sun. One of his relatives was an assistant secretary of war under Lincoln. He's just... So he's from, like, a, quote, good family. Good family. Yeah. His father was called Charles Bacchus Dana, and he was an Episcopal minister. And he was actually the minister at... Christ Church in Alexandria, Virginia. And this was called Washington's Church. Like George Washington? Like George Washington. Mm. And so that's where George Washington went. It was BFD. While he was the minister there, Robert E. Lee attended church there. And the two men became friends. And that gave him immediate cachet. Right. Now, his father was 54. And he married a woman that was less than half his age. And he promptly moved down south. Shady. people think that maybe the congregation was like, that's scandalous, Mm -hmm. and sent him to the backwoods. And so eventually he takes over Trinity Church in Natchez, which is still there and quite lovely, and he purchases Glenwood, which later becomes Goat Castle. So Dana's father dies in 1873, his mom dies in 1883, and then his brother dies in the Spanish-American War from disease. So he's the sole heir. The sole heir. And then, like, he was a pianist, he, he studied was, at Vanderbilt. He did study at Vanderbilt for two years, and he did go to New York at some point to do something with music, but he says, like, his right hand was injured, and he never had proper use of it, and his career was thwarted. So, by age 28, around 1900, he is back in Natchez, and he's actually rooming at a boarding house that's owned by Octavia Dockery's family where she's also living and so that's how they meet that's how she meets that shrewd woman she is quite shrewd so she octavia dockery was born in lamartine arkansas her father was actually a confederate general so he was captured during the siege at vicksburg and he swore loyalty oath to the union and then promptly ignored went back, it. ignored it and fought for the confederacy until the end of the war and after the war ended he found work in houston but kind of just dropped octavia and her mom and sisters off with a relative when that relative died he kind of had to come back and pick up his baggage and at that time they moved to new york but her mother died new york did not go well for him he got in a fight with a former employer who implied he was a liar and it made the papers dockery dealt mr chu a lusty blow to the face 
followed him down a hallway when he tried to get away and knocked him down and kicked him and pulled his beard energetically. Oh, no. A man tried to break up the fight, so Dockery hit him, too. New York Times reported on his public outburst for three days in a row in 1884. Almost a slow news week. Or crazy. The headline for March 22nd announced General Dockery on the warpath. After thrashing two men, he thirsts for more blood. And... Then he dies, graced and penniless in New York. So now Octavia is taken in by her brother-in-law and sister, and they promise to look after her until she gets married. When's she getting married? She never gets married. Ah, loophole. So they finally moved to Natchez, and it seems to be a pretty good fit for Octavia. Thing you need to know about Octavia. Yes. She wanted to be a writer. Okay. Did she write anything? She did. She wrote some bodice rippers. Did she write that Aaron Burr thing? <laughs> I suspect it strongly. Very possible. Right, she wrote a short story called Held by the Enemy that was published in the magazine The Blue and the Gray. Oh, well, yes. It's like about a southern woman who falls in love with a union man or vice versa. I can't remember, but anyway. She writes that. She writes some nonfiction stuff about sugar production on Louisiana plantations. But the Saturday Evening Post would note years later, her verse was bad, but she esteemed it more than her beauty. Well, at least she has that. She was a little vain, though. She would typically shave like 10 to 15 years off her age. And she would always like list her occupation as magazine writer. Living the dream. Set in the dream. Dream big. Or little. At some point, she and the brother-in-law and the sister and their daughter and Dick all moved to Glenwood out of the house where he was formerly a boarder. So now they're living with him in the dilapidated mansion that he wouldn't live in because it was so dilapidated. And then shortly after the move, the brother-in-law and the sister both die and the daughter, their daughter, moves out because she has sense. And Dick and Octavia are left alone at Glenwood. Now Dick was in severe mental decline. There's some excerpts from a journal that he'd been keeping for years. For example, here's an entry. Mr. Foreman insulting a dog. Passed through the streets of Natchez. Don't look at anyone. A piano toy at the kitchen door. Oh yeah, that seems right. One note said, Doc says, I am an old fool and I got no sense. I'm not an old fool and got sense. He may think they can change me. So Octavia officially became his guardian in 1923. And she said if she was not on the premises to care for him, he was going to become a ward of the state and have to go live in an asylum, and nobody wanted that. So just let them live in the decrepit old mansion together. I will watch the lunatic. So. Being the South. (laughs) This odd pair ends up living in this dilapidated old plantation, Uh forgetting to pay their taxes and letting their goats and hogs just roam in and out of the house and all around the property. And across the property line to eat the less bedeezer. He was not. I don't even know what a lespedeza is. It's a flower. I assume. (laughs) It's lovely. He was not easy to manage. This was not just a, like, coasting job. Like, they found her knocked out in a field once. What? And the officer that went to see about her was like, I know it was Dana. And she was like, I know it was some colored man. Always. Always. So, let's talk for a moment about Glenwood. Goats. This is kind of our fifth character in the story. The house. The house. It was described as dilapidated. It had no electricity or running water. The roof was rotten. All the furniture had belonged to Dana's parents. And along with the library that Reverend Dana had amassed, those were the most expensive, valuable items in the home. And they were in total disrepair. There were broken windows, crumbling chimneys, wallpaper peeling away. 
dust and cobwebs all over the corners of the home. And there were also cats, chicken, geese, and a herd of goats living in the house. Chickens built their nest on library shelves and goats stripped wallpaper and ate pages out of books. Oh no, those books are probably worth so much money. They were like signed by Robert E. Lee. Like he had some of Robert E. Lee's personal library. Do you know how much that would be worth on alt-right websites? <laughs> they probably had a bunch of Sir Walter Scott's original. Oh my god, no. Books, which when we toured them, you know, we talked about how popular he was the last episode. When we toured the Longwood home, they were like, we had all of those Walter Scott books checked. To see if we could sell them to further our restoration. I was like, <laughs> no. Octavia seemed resigned to the filth of the place. Like, she did, just didn't seem to notice. She was very, I guess, oblivious. Like, she moved through life being like, can you believe this house? Can you believe what a mess this house Weird is? Like, what would one thing. do this house clean? I just don't understand. She also supported Dana and herself by selling milk and eggs. Now, around this time, Dick had kind of completely lost touch with the reality. I mean, we already had the diary entry. But now, for a moment, let's imagine that you're out walking through the woods. Okay. It's lovely. It's kind of hot and humid. Hot and humid. And you look up in the tree. And a bird. It's not a bird. It's a beautiful bird. It's Dick Dana. It's a dick. <laughs> it's Dick Dana. And he is wearing... Yes, a, a bird costume. A gunny sack. A gunny sack. A burlap sack with a hole cut out for his head and two holes for arms. Oh my God. And he believes that creativity and artistic talent are directly linked to the length of, of one's hair. Oh yeah, definitely. Everyone knows that. And so... It's like he's, Samson. He's not cut his hair in a bit. And he doesn't like to bathe. And he's in his 70s. Seventies, and he's in the tree. Hi, Dick. <laughs> Hiding from you, and you say, "Dick Dana, is that you?" And he says, "No." <laughs> no. <laughs> and if you don't see him, he might grab hold of the vines hanging down from the tree and swing down in front of you, and then scurry away. Seriously? Yes. No. <laughs> what in the world is this? They would lose him for weeks at a time and he'd just go live in the woods. No. This is true. And so this is all going on. Octavia's dealing with this shit. It's the Great Depression. It's a lot of things. She's selling milk and eggs. And she's like, we should do something else for money. Let's rent out that old place down there on the property. Now that old place was a former roadhouse that had been known to police as the Bucket of Blood. Sounds hospitable. It was. There were so often fights there that that's what the police began calling it. Now they called it the Skunk's Nest. Also hospitable. Sheriff Clarence Roberts said the place was as unsavory in reputation as it was smelly in name. They rented it out to a man named John Geiger, who was an unemployed logger. He rented the Skunk's Nest in July of 1932. For three weeks. This is the guy that couldn't afford to buy the skunk's nest. He's renting the skunk's nest. He gets run out for not paying rent. Octavia and Dick immediately go down and loot everything he left. Perfect. So they take some broken furniture, an old mattress, and a brown overcoat. How you say it, I feel like it's important. It's key. The mattress, they turn into a little house for their kittens on the front porch. okay. And the brown overcoat... Yes. They turn into a key piece of evidence in a murder trial. Probably not on purpose. (laughs) 
It wasn't part of the plan. So Miss Jenny's continual lawsuits imposed a significant financial burden on Octavia and Dick, and they never quite forgave Duncan Minor for trying to have them removed from this property that he had purchased. Good money, like 40 bucks. It's like two Andrew Jacksons. That's worse than one Andrew Jackson. <laughs> Before we continue, we must cross the color line and meet the other players in the story. You'll notice these people were not talked about in that newspaper article so much as these four that we've covered so far. Briefly one line at the end. Mm -hmm. But they are the people who were actually blamed for the murder. We need to go meet George Pearls, a.k.a. Lawrence Williams, a.k.a. Pinkney Williams, a.k.a. Pink, who I don't know if you can tell from all of those aliases, probably wasn't the most savory of characters. And we also need to meet Emily Burns. So to put this story in the appropriate historical context, we need to remember a couple of things. It's the Great Depression. Right. So the fact that Miss Jenny had 175K. In 1930. Fucking rich. Right. And of course, it's also the Jim Crow era. It is the Jim Crow era. And There's the deepest of Deep South. About this shit. Let's meet these characters. Emily Black Burns was born in Natchez in 1895. And her mother was a daughter of former slaves as was her father. And both lived and worked in the predominantly black neighborhood along St. Catherine Street, which is near Forks of the Road. And her father, James Black, was a factory worker, and her mother, Nellie, was a laundress. Emily did attend school through the fifth grade and could read and write. And she married a man named Ed Burns when she was 16. The couple lived with their parents, and they never had any children. And eventually, Emily became a laundress like her mother. In the late 1920s, both her father and her husband died. And now she and her mother were left alone to support themselves. And they were both widowed. So they decided that they would start taking in boarders. One of the renters was Ed Newell, who was a local embalmer. He worked at the Bluff City Undertaking Company. And his full name was Edgar Allan Poe Newell. Oh, that's a name. It's an amazing name. Do you know who I, what he went by? Eddie? Poe. Poe. So... Another boarder arrived in the summer of 1932, and he was an attractive man who did pay some attention to Emily, and he told her his name was Pinkney Williams, and so Emily just called him Pink. He'd come down from Chicago looking for work in the South. He was a very slight man, just 5'7 and 140 pounds, but he was 20 years older than Emily, and he seemed to have a considerable amount of influence over her. When she met him, she had no idea that in Chicago he was known as George Pearls, and then in a past life in Natchez, he'd been known as Lawrence Williams. He'd been born in Mississippi. He was the son of former slaves from Louisiana. And he moved up north looking for work around 1911. He found employment at a sugar refinery. But in 32, Great Depression had taken its toll. The jobs were drying up. So he decided to go back down south and see if he couldn't do some work for some people he used to know and help support his family. He lived with his second wife, Meaty, and a daughter from a previous marriage. And that's how he ended up going to knock on the doors of Duncan Minor and Jane Merrill. Oh, did they hire him? Miss Jenny did feed him, though. Oh, that was nice. But she wouldn't give him any work. So after he was turned away at Glen Burnie... He went next door. He went next door because it looked like that house needed some fucking right. work done. <laughs> and Dick and Octavia had some suggestions about where he could get some money. Milk and the goats. No. So they say to Pink, Duncan Miner comes over here every day like clockwork between 8.30 and 9 o'clock. Mm -hmm. So we suggest that we go after sunset, but before 8.30 or 9 o'clock, and we go rob that woman, that old goat. 
Goat. Goat. She's got a goat now? No. Pink goes back to the boarding house with this information, and for whatever reason, he asks Emily, hey, you want to go on a walk with me? And she says, sure. And so they're out going for a walk. And as they go along for this walk, they wind up at Glenwood. Octavia and Dick are there waiting on him. Now, at Glenwood, Pink was given Geiger's brown overcoat. A news key. To wear as a disguise. Now, this is the first time Emily heard anything about any plans to rob anybody. Poor girl. She asked if she could leave. You're gonna do what? She's like, I think I'm gonna leave. And Pink, at this point, threatens her. And is like, no, 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 you know too much, you're staying with me. Hmm. Don't you go tell anybody. So around 7 p.m., they head over to Glen Burnie. And Dick Dana unties the German shepherd that Miss Jenny kept in her backyard and goes and puts it in the barn. And then they all go hide under the house and listen to see if they can tell which room she's in. And after a little while, Pink goes up and enters through the front door, covering his face with a brown overcoat, and goes in, presumably to rob Miss Jenny. And he tells Emily to come out and stand watch. Now, at some point, Poe is sort of conjured into this mix. Of course. He's often mentioned in her recounting of what happened, but she's never really clear on, like, how he got there, where they met him, when they talked, who, like, she says they were, like, walking along the railroad tracks and they saw him and Pink asked him to come with Like, he's, his involvement is very enigmatic. It's kind of shady. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. So, while she's standing out on the porch, she hears a scuffle, and then screaming, and then gunshots. Uh Uh-oh. So, this is from the book Goat Castle by Karen L. Cox. Would recommend. It was close to 8 o'clock and becoming more difficult to see. Duncan Miner would be there soon. Poe handed the silver lamp from Jenny's bedroom to Emily and went back inside to help. Pink. Jenny Merrill may have been a tiny woman. Her car mechanic estimated she didn't even weigh 90 pounds, but Pink did not have the strength to carry her alone. So he and Poe picked up Jenny's now lifeless body and took her through the dining room, where one of the bloody slippers and hair combs fell on the floor. They carried her through the door that led to the side porch, circling around to the front of the house and then down the stairs, while Emily held the lamp to light their path. Once outside, the men carried the body toward a rocky driveway about 100 feet from the house, where they slipped and dropped Jenny on the ground. They could not see it, but the second of her bedroom slippers fell off along with another of her hair combs. She was still breathing profusely, so that when they picked her up again, another pool of blood had gathered. As they rushed to dispose of the body, they headed toward the woods that separated Merrill's estate from Glenwood. They got about a hundred yards from Jenny's house before they tossed her body face up into a thicket near a deep ravine. Emily, who had, been accom- who had accompanied them, threw the lamp in the weeds about twenty feet away. Pink yelled at her to pick it back up and light it, but she hesitated because she had no matches. So he grabbed the lamp and lit it himself. The three of them headed back toward the house. As Emily stood outside, Pink and Poe went back in. Octavia and Dick were already there. They ransacked Merrill's home, pulling drawers from furniture, including an old washstand and a shift robe. One of them went through Jenny's purse and another flipped the mattress on her bed, looking for a stash of money, but there was none to be had. A woman was dead, and not just any woman. Jenny Merrill was the planter aristocracy in a town that prided itself on heritage. The unlikely group scattered. Pink and Emily went back as they came through the woods, crossing over railroad tracks and then through the Melrose estate to a back road that led to her house on St. Catherine Street. So dramatic irony. We know what's happened, but Duncan doesn't. And he shows up around 9 p.m. Oh, no. There's a man like kind of standing along the path he usually rides, kind of waiting on him. That's weird. It's a black man. Uh-oh. That lived nearby, huh. and he heard the shots and stuff, and he was like, "I am not going in that white lady's house by myself." Me. 
I know what's going to happen. No way. So, like, I mean, that that to me, like, indicates the severity of the power discrepancy. And, like, so, so much. But he, like, went and waited. And he was like, hey, there's some shit gone down over there, but I need you to come with me so they don't come after me for it. Right. So he's waiting, and he and Duncan go to the house, find the home ransacked. There's blood all over the walls. And when they lit, and they also see, like, bloody hair combs, a bloody slipper lying on the floor. And so they go outside to search for her, and they're looking for an hour before Duncan finally tells one of the other guys that's kind of come up see after he saw the commotion. He's like, you need to go call the police. And so they go and call for the police. And a posse was pulled together around 11 p.m. And leading them was this man, Clarence Roberts, Sheriff Clarence Roberts, who we talked about. But he went by the name Book. Book? He was smart? Bookish no. guy? No, he was not. Well, he was smart enough, but that's not where he got the nickname. So, shortly after the Civil War, he was arguing with one of his classmates, and being a Mississippian, he needed an insult, and he said, you're just like Abraham Lincoln. High insult. Indeed. And so the classmate responded, well, yeah, you're Booker T. Washington. Really? Apparently... They were very up on their current events, but I guess it was a sick burn, and the name stuck. It stuck. So he's Book. So he calls in bloodhounds from Louisiana and a fingerprint expert for Jackson, and he's, like, taking everything very seriously. They have not located Miss Jenny's body yet. So after getting all of the investigative mechanisms in order, he decides, fuck, (laughs) I have to go to Goat Castle. Yeah, I mean, there's been so much tension between them. And maybe they heard something, and I just need the to go neighbors. See. And like, okay, so he goes across. He's gonna go to Glenwood and talk to Octavia and Dick. And he goes. It's around midnight. He walks up on the porch and starts to knock on the door. And he looks over and he notices that there is a shirt that has been washed very huh. recently, hanging out to dry on the porch. And he's Sketchy. like, "Did they do luminol on it? They didn't have luminol. I know. No, but he's like, Dick Dane ain't washed nothing for nobody." Like, yeah. he, like, the man lives in gunny sacks. Why is he laundered a shirt at midnight? And so he knocks and, come in, he opens the door, and as he's coming down the stairs, like, adjusting his shirt, Dick Dana just says, I know nothing of the murder. Oh, God. There's no body. So he's arrested immediately. They are arrested immediately and taken to the Adams County Jail. I would say, I thought you were going to say no. <laughs> they they are. They're taking, like, Sheriff Book is like, they these motherfuckers <laughs> something to do with it. Well, he's probably been answering phone calls from him for the last five years. <laughs> so, bloodhounds were given the overcoat to sniff because it had been left at, at Miss Jenny's house. And they track it to Glenwood. And along the way, they find a broken blue china lamp, which Duncan recognizes as having belonged to Miss Jenny. Her body was discovered in a thicket of bushes exactly where Duncan told searchers to look around 5.45 a.m. We're not going to talk about how sketchy that is yet. I have a section for that. Then blood was found at Glenwood, which Dick claimed was from slaughtering a hog indoors. In the house. They did. I guess. No, they did. (laughs) Not that day, but they definitely were not hygienic. So then it was discovered that Geiger was the owner of the overcoat, and he explained that he'd left it at the skunk's nest. And that Dana and Dockery had probably gone to get it. And so now they're linked that way. And then Dick continues to change his story. And at one point, he just blurts out unsolicited, like no one asked him anything. I did not put the overcoat over her head. God. (laughs) He's really bad at this game. Really bad. And then fingerprints were found at Glen Burnie that matched Octavia's. And fingerprints were found on the lamp that matched Dick. And then the cries of injustice started. And people began demanding that Dick and Octavia be released. 
Meanwhile, Dana and Dockery received visitors at the jail daily. Young girls from prominent families brought them flowers and petitions for their release. People dropped off books, magazines, beddings, packages of fruit, more bouquets of flowers, cards of sympathy. After several days, the sympathy even turned to resentment at the thought of the two of them being bewildered by the relentless questioning. Trespassing visitors at Glenwood also hastened the calls for their release. Dockery spoke to reporters, and she says, Can you wonder that Dick chose to shun the world when people can be so heartless and cruel? While we're behind bars of prison for a crime as which God is my bear, we're innocent. Vandals prowl through our house. Is there no law, no justice that will protect our property right? Is everyone devoid of human feeling? She was a writer. Mm-hmm. She told a reporter, You're a newspaper man. Tell the world. No, I did not kill Miss Merrill. God knows I did not kill her. True, she was no friend of mine. But if I had known her life was in danger, I would have called for help. Bullshit. Bullshit. <laughs> so their habeas corpus hearing was scheduled for August 15th, and there was a full courtroom, mostly of supporters. And the DA stood up and said they had insufficient evidence to hold him. And the judge said, that's right. Sure. No, they had fingerprints. They had... Oh, yeah. They had, like, the weird statements from Dana. They had the shirt. They had the finger... I mean... No proof. Blood. They had... No proof. So, free to go. And they released on their own recognizance, and they returned to Glenwood. Meanwhile, Book Roberts had a tip. He said he received it from, quote, an older man in the black community. And he told him that, in Book's words, a Chicago Detroit Negro, who was locally known as Williams had been asking for work, and he had gone to see Jenny and been turned away. And so from there, Book began to track down the suspicious character. He followed rumors of the man to the home of Zula Curtis, who was the owner of the first boarding house where he'd stayed. And she said that he'd looked for work with Octavia and Dick, and remarked that Glenwood was filthy. That tracked. Yeah. And he, yeah, also, yeah. And he also said that Glen Burney was in need of being painted, but they, and I assume that means Jenny and Duncan, were too stingy to give him work. And from Zula's house, he was put in touch with another source, a chauffeur called Lewis Winston, who claimed that he'd moved a man's trunk from Zula's house to another home as a favor to an acquaintance. He stated, While I did not know him, I'd heard of him from my relatives. He'd removed from Natchez when I was a boy. So where did he take this trunk? Well, to the home of Nellie Black and Emily Burns, clearly. Of course. So they show up on their doorstep and arrest both Nellie, who's her mother, and Emily on August 13th. And well, that's the- ridiculous. But they found Pink's trunk in the home. But they let Dick Dockery go. The Dickery Dockery, Dockery, Dockery duo. I know. I, and there will be more of that. Don't worry. So they found Pink's trunk, and inside there were unspecified burglary tools, which were probably like tool tools. <laughs> like tools, like actual tools. But there were thirty-two caliber bullets, which did match the bullets used in the crime. And there were also life insurance policies made out for George Pearls. Ah, now they have a real name. Well, Sheriff Book immediately recognized the name because he had received a call from a man named Sheriff Fiveash had called from Pine Bluff, Arkansas, to see if a man named George Pearls was wanted for any crimes in Natchez, because he'd been killed in a shootout, right, uh-huh. with police, and in his effects, it was indicated his name was Pearls. Now, they'd found letters postmarked Natchez in his bag, and, you know, since well, he'd resisted arrest, uh-huh. they were like, oh, well, clearly he's probably wanted for other crimes, I should call the sheriff down there. 
And when he got this call, he's like, I've never heard of George Pearls before in my life. Thanks for the heads up. So after he finds out that this Williams fellow and George Pearls are actually the same person, he immediately calls Pine Bluff and is like, hey, I need to come photograph that body you were telling me about. Turns out he's a murderer. And the guy's like, oh, his wife already came and got him. He's on his way back to Chicago. And so... Road trip. Road trip. Time for a road trip. So they go and get the gun. It's sent off to New Orleans for ballistics. And they send this telegram. Hold the body of George Pearls, alias Lawrence Williams, alias Pinckney Williams, shipped August 13th from Pine Bluff, Arkansas, to People's Undertaking Establishment in Chicago, accompanied by wife Meaty Williams. Pearls is positively identified as the murderer of Jane Merrill, signed C.P. Roberts, Sheriff, Adams County. When they got to Chicago, the man that they brought with them, who knew Pink, did positively identify the body, but they also got, like, a letter from his daughter... It read, to whom it may concern, this is to certify that the body of George Pearls is the same as the man known as Lawrence Williams, also known as Pinckney Williams, in the city of Natchez, Mississippi. He is my own father. Interesting. So they took their photos of the body and the gun and the letters and his fingerprints and they head back south. So did they just stick it all in him since he was already dead? No, honey. There wasn't a scapegoat? Well, there was no show trial, so what are you supposed uh, to do with that? You're I mean, right. like, That'd be boring. It, what else do we have to do? They go after Emily Burns with everything they've got. Aww. It's awful. Even in the worst case, she held the lamp. <laughs> I know. She was being interrogated every single day for hours a day. And on the 11th day, she confessed. And she did so after entering the interrogation room and seeing the white police officer reach down to the ground and pick up a bullwhip. Oh, bullshit. And put it on the table. Oh my god, that's ridiculous. At 12.40am on August 23rd, she confesses. She says that Pink killed Meryl, Poe helped move the body, she carried the lamp. And that Octavia and Dick had given them that goddamn overcoat. (laughs) That's like their (laughs) linchpin for everything. But did not place him at the scene. And Book was like, no, I'm sorry. Dick and Octavia are in on this, and oh, you so don't. He know. wants to get them to them too. Yes, he thinks they he's do it too. He's after them, and okay. he's not letting that shit go. Okay, first I thought he was trying to pin on the black people. No, kind of everyone else was. There was this guy I didn't write about him because this is such a long story. But this guy from New Orleans, this yeah. like hot shit detective, uh-huh. Maurice O'Neill. When he came in, the investigation shifted focus away from uh-huh. Dockery and Dana to the black community. Mm. And it was kind of his deal, like, that that had to be true. Oh, okay. But Book was like, it's the crazy people. Come on. Do you see that guy? Like I say, he's probably been called to the house, like, 20 times. So he will not charge them. Because he doesn't, he's like, her confession does not involve Dick Dana and Octavia Dockery. Bullshit. Okay. He wants to hold him for questioning. He does think she knows stuff. And he's like, oh my God, if I don't charge them, if I don't proceed, they're going to get lynched. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, you mean Emily? Yeah. Oh. And he was like, I've got to, I've got to get her out of here. And so he took her and Poe and Nellie, her mother, still being held, right. all to Jackson to be held until trial. So interesting. Later, her confession was amended to include more Dick and Dockery. <laughs> she was probably worried that if she... Said the white people said, did it, yeah, it would be worse. Exactly. I know. I know. I feel so sorry <clears throat> for her. And now they were present at the scene in her version of the confession. And she also revealed that Pink had headed north to evade law enforcement. 
after the crime, which worked out really fucking well. Yeah. Her confession also included the following paragraph at the end. I would like you to read this for us. I feel like you need to. While I've been in jail, I couldn't have been treated no better if I'd been a white lady. They'd been very kind to me. Nobody has promised me anything, and nobody has threatened me since I've been in jail. I've told this because I wanted to and wanted to tell the truth. I'm doing this on my own free will. You know, I had you write, read that. Because <laughs> a white guy wrote it? Yes. <laughs> to God. <clears throat> Poe was released without explanation. The Poe shit is so shady. I do not That's know what's weird. going on. Like, it does not make sense in context of this time. With her, every time she tells the story, she's like, and Poe and Pink were there. So grand jury was convened on November 17th. Nellie and Emily were both held the entire time between arrest and trial and allowed no visitors except their pastor. Emily was eventually found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. But many people in the press and in the local community were suspicious that she had not actually been involved. Like, it's really interesting... There's a great amount of sympathy toward her, even in the white papers of the time. Very like, interesting. I, I was surprised to see how much people were like, what the fuck? You know? There's gotta be the crazy people. Yeah. We've read Faulkner. <laughs> um, however, she was sent to state prison and would have served out a life sentence had it not been for the weird sideshow attraction of mercy courts mercy courts so i feel like there was at one point in mississippi's history a governor who was like basically named executive overreach and just loved anything he could do all by himself (laughs) the governor would go down to the penitentiary okay once a year around christmas okay and or maybe he just really wanted to be santa i don't know and he would speak to people who were in prison and if he decided that their case merited mercy he would grant them a full pardon and send them on their way just based on what they told him wow so emily tried this repeatedly Mm -hmm. with the the originator of the mercy court system but it was not until his successor governor johnson took office in 1940 that her case was heard and that she was released she was released with a full pardon oh wow and sent home Interesting. So she served eight years in prison and then went back to Adams County, Natchez, and lived out her life. She seems to have had a pretty nice life. She married a man and they seem to have had a lovely relationship and she stayed involved with a church, uh, Antioch Baptist Church, we saw down there, and did okay. Wow. But you know we're not done with this story. (laughs) That'd be boring. So here's my little section of like, mm, side eye. Hey, go look under that bush. What the fuck, Duncan Miner? What the F? So Emily does eight years in jail because she carried a lamp. Yeah, those lamps are dangerous. And this evidence existing, circumstantial evidence existing in Miner, and we are not, we're not going to look into it. I will tell you the circumstantial evidence. He inherited Jenny's entire estate. Oh, Valued that's sketchy. Valued at one hundred and fifty. To $250,000 in 1930 fucking two. Middle of the Great Depression. His prints were all over her house, but hey, they were supposed to be there. there. He waited an hour to notify the authorities. Sketch. He told people exactly where to find her body. Yeah. Said he just had a feeling that's where she was. Mm -hmm. Smell the money from over there. He moved into Glen Burnie immediately following Jenny's burial. 
and refused to speak to the press at all. Huh. He also claimed to have lived at Glen Burnie for several years, but he would not answer any questions about whether or not they were married. So sketch. This whole thing is sketch. He so was in on it. Yeah, I think he may have hired They were all him. in on it. I don't think... I actually don't know if Dick and Octavia did anything other than go rifle through. Around the time of the murder, August of 1932, a lot of visitors were coming to Natchez. So this is the pilgrimage. The first pilgrimage. The pilgrimage. And so while they were there, the papers had been printing tons and tons and tons and tons of articles about this shit. And... People just went over to Glenwood, Goat Castle, and went and took some souvenirs. What do you mean? A goat? Did they take a goat? They may have, but (laughs) they took books, they took magazines, they took just any shit lying around. This was actually not that uncommon back in the day when there was a grisly crime or anything of that nature. People would just traipse through the crime scene. Oh, good. And take shit. I mean, think about Bonnie, Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, yeah. So, while Dick and Octavia were in jail, this takes place, and Octavia is pissed. She starts screaming that they have stolen all her fine jewelry, which I'm like, yeah, right. Yeah. And the police are in on it, and this is just part of their plan to, like... Conspiracy. Awful. And she was so offended by what had taken place that she said, this will never happen again unless I fucking charge admission. She was a smart woman. (laughs) She was. And so she started charging a quarter a person for people to come on the grounds. Nice. Great Depression. Quarter a person. And people were paying it. Like 500 people on a Sunday. They were lining up. That's amazing. So Gwen Bristow of the Times-Picayune describes the home. This is from the Times. This is... Oh, yes. She says, Damask and dirt mingle in Dick Dana's goat castle. Edgar Allan Poe never described... A place such as Goat Castle, because he never saw its equal. There are some pictures beyond imagination. Chickens and ducks run in and out of the doorway and flutter over the furniture in the hall with an easy familiarity. Cats scramble over the sofa in the front parlor. Dust covers everything so thick that even the titles of some of the magazines cannot be read. She described the library where Octavia did her cooking. The hearth contained a, quote, Half-burnt greasy frying pan, kettles, pans, etc. It was covered with, quote, straw, gunny sacks, old shoes, cans, and sticks. Just off the library, there was another room, which Bristow surmised had been a dining room, but was now used by Dana and Miss Dockery as a pen for their goats. She described Octavia's room. It contained a four-poster mahogany bed, but that's not where she slept. She had a mattress laid across a series of shaky supports, which consisted of two broken chairs, a drawer from a dresser, a box, and two sticks of wood, and it was covered with an old carriage robe. Dick slept in an adjacent room. He placed his mattress on the bare floor and covered it with a pile that presumably was once sheets and blankets. Above his bed was a tattered mosquito net that no longer served its purpose. Octavia cooked upstairs, too. Um, she had taken bed springs from one of the four-poster beds and used them to smoke goat meat. What? Bristow knew this because Octavia had left a large piece of meat from a recently slaughtered goat lying on the springs in the same room. Okay. There was a trunk of books, Reverend Dana's sermons, letters, antique clothing. On the lid of these trunks, there are five wasp nests, the occupants of which buzz dangerously around your head when you approach. So, while they were in prison, 
this group formed local supporters, the Friends of Goat Castle. Once these descriptions started getting printed in the press, the Friends advised Octavia that she needed to get the house in good enough shape where people could come inside it. And so she hired, they hired some boys, they sent them out there, and they started trying to clean the place up, and they kind of cleared a trail. They left most of the detritus, but they just basically got rakes and raked shit out enough that people could get inside it. And so then she began charging an additional quarter to come in the house. That's like 50 cents. Quarter to get on the grounds, quarter to get in the house. She's 50 cents money. in my pocket. Now, if you paid your quarter. Did you get a goat? No. Where are the goat? Better. Oh, the goats were pissed that people were coming and they all moved down to the bayou. Well, I'd be like pissed the- if I paid to go to the goat castle and weren't any goats. Oh, but listen what you get. <laughs> Once Octavia cleared a path for the onslaught of tourists, Dick began offering weekend performances at Goat Castle. Wonderful. There was an old dust-covered piano in the house, which he tried to pluck out a few songs on to entertain guests. He seemed to delight in the attention and the opportunity to play, but the piano was so out of tune for so long and had for so long been a roosting place for chickens and geese that made a pitiful spectacle. When word got out, an anonymous donor had a new upright piano delivered to Glenwood. Dick could now play and sing to his heart's content for the enjoyment of tourists. Oh, I bet. So, this was phase one. The house was phase one of their media blitz. Media blitz? Yes. So, they started doing radio concerts and traveling around the South, marketing themselves as an act. What? Um, They started out going by the names Dockery and Dana. But they found they got much better results if they listed themselves as the wild man and the goat woman. Oh, good. Sounds like a freak show act. It kind of was, but it was more like a lecture series thing. Were they lecture? Well, she would. And he would play play the piano? piano and sing. She would lecture on stories of the Old South. They would bring around relics from their home and display them. And they would do radio interviews and, 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 and. This is the crazy that they, they start living in. Now, they also make Dick put on real clothes. They buy him suits and trim his beard into Seems a goatee. Seems to defeat the wild man. Well, I don't know exactly Idea. How. Well, he got concerned that he was not appealing to ladies anymore. Oh, well. And he wanted to be cleaned up. At one point, he even insisted that he have, quote, new store teeth. Because he didn't have any teeth before he would play and sing in public again. So he got dentures. He got a goatee. He got a Colonel Sanders look. So he glowed up. Yes. And then Octavia decides she's going to sue Sheriff Book Roberts. Seriously? For wrongful arrest. And she claims that... Dick is owed $1,600 and she's owed $1,000 for all the property that was looted from their um. home while they're in jail and that they have caused all of this emotional damage has been caused. I mean, that dried goat meat is worth a lot. Right? This is the right. depression. So they're going to take Sheriff Book to court. And so on the morning that they're there filing this suit, Sheriff Book says he knows of a case which would affect the outcome of this case of the suit and it may have to be before the court and it would present a conflict of interest he's being very cagey about all hmm. that and up his at that moment he says that he is going to have the couple indicted for murder <gasps> this is like years later yeah <laughs> and he says new evidence is surfaced and he can't proceed with the civil suit until the criminal matter is settled so their suit's thrown out 
and they start proceedings against Dockery and Dana for the murder of Jenny Merrill. Nice. What's the first thing you got to do before you can have a trial? Oh, I've just like the jury. Well, the jury pool is too tainted. Yes. The case has been too highly publicized, and the judge declares a mistrial. Just from that? Well, they're planning on bringing it back like another year, but then Dana's health starts to decline, and they're like, just let him die, dude. (laughs) And so the suit against Book is dropped, charges against them are dropped, and eventually Dana does die in uh, 1948, and Octavia dies in 1949, and both of them get New York Times obituaries. What happened to Goat Castle? It was demolished in 1955. So sad. Glenn Burney's still there. And this is the towel of Goat Castle. The Goat Castle murder. But I think what captured the public's imagination about the case was this idea of decay, decline, inability to move on, and romance. It was a epitome of the Southern Gothic type. The Southern Gothic genre, if you will. Like, what's left after the Civil War? Yeah, I think it's so interesting because you can look at so many of these tales and legends that we've talked about today, and a lot of them are tied to these real historical events and the, the things that came from them, the things that came after them. I didn't realize it until we were going through all of these in order tonight, but there's also a real undertone of betrayal. There is. In there all is. of the stories. It's turncoats, it's treason, it's... Tarnished warriors and... Broken promises and... Adultery and... <laughs> choosing the wrong side of history. And I think that it's from the harps who continually did it on purpose and probably out of meanness to Haller Nut who chose the wrong side and invested all of his money and hopes in an unsustainable practice of cruelty... There's something about us that can't help but go like, dude, <laughs> like, come on. Why are you doing that? It's this, this feeling of like, because there's a wall of time, we can't reach back and tell them like you're making the wrong choice. And I think that's the feeling that people get when they read these Southern Gothic stories is like wanting to stop it, wanting to get in to save them. You want to save them from going down on the wrong side of history, from making that choice that will forever tarnish them. And that's the sense of loss I have when I see these grand southern mansions. It's like, I just want to go back and stop it. And that feeling of helplessness and shame, I feel ashamed for them. It's a really peculiar feeling. Yeah, I feel like you, you know, you go to the homes and you you hear the stories and you hear the tales, but you also hear the history. These homes and these places like this are such physical manifestations of that southern gothic idea a once grand family a once grand home now in pieces instead of hosting balls there are goats there's just trash and detritus i feel like the story of goat castle it's like must have represented to all of the papers in the north and you know around the country kind of what the title was like the fall of the southern bell the fall of the old antebellum south i think that it did serve as an effective symbol for the rest of the country when they looked on all the skeletons in the closet there was a period between the civil war and when this happened where the south was highly romanticized 
But this was something of a revelation because it really was confirming all the suspicions that people had. And I think that we live with that story in the South, that there are skeletons in every closet. You know, like that's something we expect. We expect to dig up the chimney and find a body with a dagger in the heart. We expect all of the debris from all the things that everyone before us has broken to land on our heads. It's easier to believe that things, that bad things happened. That story makes more sense to us. And that's not just a story. It's not just a story.